just totally brain farted like uh, that's got to be a record that's like okay all right in. welcome <laughs> to the weirdest thing podcast this is our podcast where we tell you i've taken over where we tell you about the weirdest things we found on the internet this week my name is amelia Umpuero, and i am scotty milder i think <laughs> <laughs> no, that was that was super weird it was like i it's started talking to... and then it just like stop yeah the 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 plug got pulled um yeah. it's hard to not have a little bit of performance anxiety about opening this show since we refuse to codify it in any way yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well i think i got a little in my head because like last time you were all like i never know what you're gonna do so like... <laughs> <laughs> hold on i need to move a chair so wait just a sec okay okay all right ready cool. i could have done that in the literal 10 minutes since you were like hey i'll be ready in a few minutes but instead i decided to do it live fuck it on i'll do air. it live on air <laughs> who was that who was that that did that, that? was uh that was bill o'reilly <laughs> fuck it do it live yeah <laughs> that fucking guy oh <sighs> Let's just oh, let's just God. ponder Bill O'Reilly for a second. Okay. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> yep, moving on. So this is we're going back to doing a uh, one of our odds and ends episodes. So we've got mm -hmm. three kind of shorter stories for you guys this week. Yep. And uh, I also should let everyone know um, that we're we are going to take a little short little break after this episode. Mm -hmm. uh just for like two three weeks something like that I'm, I'm starting a new class that i'm teaching and i gotta get my shit together on that so mm -hmm. uh, but we will be back so do not worry we promise yeah i'm sure as much as we can promise anything these days yeah. <laughs> I, I was like "Ooh, that's foolish yeah right as i said it <laughs> we are 99 percent sure <laughs> we'll be back in a few weeks <laughs> barring like any kind of impending doom right. or nuclear war knock on wood <laughs> asteroid slamming into the earth all of those precisely products. but yeah this is our odds and ends episode and i think i am starting this week i'm excited so i love okay. a good burnt ends episode all right so i am starting we mentioned this on well you mentioned it when you were doing the most mysterious song on the internet yes uh i am going to talk about the max headroom signal hijacking incident <sighs> of 1987. Okay. Uh, okay, this creeps me out. I'm glad you're doing this first because it's still light outside. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Th this is not like like you said on that episode. There's nothing that should be creepy about this. It's creepy. It's incredibly creepy. <laughs> it's incredibly creepy. All right. So November 22nd, 1987, the signals of two Chicago TV stations were hijacked by somebody wearing a Max Hedrum mask and costume. Mm -mm. They included the broadcast included distorted audio and showed this figure, this person wearing the Max Hedrum costume, standing in front of like a corrugated metal panel, like metal siding for like a building. Uh huh. 
that was like swinging back and forth. So if you guys remember the actual Max Headroom, they had that kind of CGI background that was like lines oh, that was always yeah. moving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they uh, did the dime store version of this, just got a metal panel and put it on like a C stand or something. And we're just like swiveling it. I have a question. Yeah. Which is a little bit more for our listeners, some of whom might not be old enough to remember what the hell the original Max Headroom was. Yeah, so that's my next Are you going to get to it? Fuck <laughs> <gasps> yes, we always do such great lead-ins. Yeah. Okay. Uh, this, so if you guys don't remember Max Headroom, and okay. some of you youngins may not, this this was definitely me and Amelia's generation. Mm-hmm. So Max Headroom, officially, was a character that was created by George Stone, Annabelle Jenkel, and someone named Rocky Morton. Okay. I really like that name. Mm-hmm. And actually, it sounds like Rocky Morton was kind of the main driving creative force behind Max Hedrum. He conceived it as being the most boring thing that I could think of to do. A talking head, a middle-class white male in a suit, talking <laughs> to them in a really boring way about music videos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was Max Hedrum. And it is bizarre to think back that like Max Hedrum was like a thing for a while there. Like, yeah, he was kind of I, I, everywhere. Yes, he th- th- he uh, he had a whole Pepsi thing, right? Uh, Coca Cola, actually. It was Coke. Yeah, it was Coke. I feel like that's off brand for them. <laughs> <I know. laughs> no, it was Coke, and, and I'll talk about that in a second. Okay. okay. And, and obviously, we will de- definitely be posting some images of Max Hedrum, and yes. of course, this this weirdo who broke into these TV stations <laughs> <laughs> wearing a Max Hedrum mask. So you guys can kind of compare the two. Uh, but a little bit more about Max Hedrum. So he's uh, portrayed by actor. Dr. Matt Frewer, who, if you guys, the, the the thing that I think of him from, if you've ever seen the miniseries of The Stand, the original one, not the shitty CBS All Access one, which I'm not even. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, the fucking betrayed by that show. But anyway, but the original miniseries of The Stand adaptation, Stephen King's novel, obviously, uh-huh. Matt Frewer played the trash can man in that. So he's kind of one of those that guy actors, really distinctive look. Um, Obviously, if you see a picture of him, you would recognize him. We'll post one on social media. The background story to the character was that Max was an AI, like an artificial intelligence, existing in a dystopian cyberpunk future dominated by massive corporations. And so just a little bit about what cyberpunk was. It was a genre of sci-fi that came out in the 1980s, sort of traces back to a writer named William Gibson, who wrote a novel called Neuromancer. And it was all very like near future dystopia, kind of punk rock approach to sci-fi. Like movies you would think of that fall into cyberpunk would be like Blade Runner, the Matrix. Mm, um, okay. It's not Star Wars. It's not far future stuff. It's like it's like sort of like the world around the corner. And it was a very 80s conception of this, like very informed by like Reagan, capitalism, punk rock, etc. Question. Yeah. This may be dumb, but it just everything you said just made me think about this. The Hunger Games, like what? Because I'm like near future, but they're not really yeah. sci-fi, right? I mean, I would call them dystopian science fiction, but they're not really okay. cyberpunk because like cyberpunk is very, like I said, it's got a very punk rock mentality. It's also very mm-hmm. much about tech. And, oh, like, okay. How tech affects us about the media, things like that. Mm-hmm. But I would I would call it dystopian sci-fi, but it's like the Hunger Games, I mean, but it's like loosely sci-fi. Right. <laughs> it's not a per- particularly like the sci-fi is like around it but isn't right. like 
part of the it's, story. It's sci-fi the way like a book like 1984, George Orwell's 1984 uh-huh. sci-fi. Like it's technically okay. sci-fi, but it's not really about the science part. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know? okay. It's more it's more like social satire, et cetera. Okay. And that's another aspect of cyberpunk actually is that it's very much rooted in social satire and political mm. satire. A lot of cy- cyberpunk really like satirized advertising, mm. capitalism. You know, it was very much like a kind of satirical, dark satirical look at American culture through this okay. kind of science fiction lens. So okay. anyway, so that's what cyberpunk is. Max Hedrum, the character kind of came out right as, as cyberpunk was like hitting its peak in sort mm. of the late 80s. So like I said, he was an artificial intelligence. He existed in this dystopian cyberpunk future dominated by massive corporations. His mind was crafted from the memories of a crusading investigative journalist named Edison Carter. And that the name Max Hedrum came from the last thing that Carter saw before a traffic accident put him into a coma. Which I have was, no memory of this. I do because I remember watching the TV show, but the warning sign was right before he gets in the traffic accident, he's going like into a tunnel, I think. Mm-hmm. And he looks up and he sees the sign that says Max Hedrum, 2.3 meters, like for... Uh So that's Uh where the name comes from. Now, contrary to popular belief, Max was not a CGI character. Like if you go back, you can find him on YouTube. Yeah. If you go back and watch the old Max Hedrum videos, it's just his talking head talking into the camera. And he looks very like CGI. But it was actually, this was a little bit before CGI was really able to render a character like this. So the backgrounds mm-hmm. that, like I mentioned, that line kind of wavy background that we mm-hmm. remember, that was CGI. But the character itself was actually just Matt Frewer in latex makeup. Yeah. And then they used like jump cuts and like, simulated this kind of stuttering video effect so when he's talking like the image would jump things like that Mm -hmm. so it's like a bad vhs transmission Mm -hmm. or something and a lot of voice modulation so it made him look like a computerized character even though he wasn't so max hedrum first appears in a cyberpunk tv movie called max hedrum 20 minutes into the future which was broadcast in april of 1985 i saw this around that time but i think it had to have been a rerun Mm-hmm. because my first memory of Max Hedrum actually was the Coke commercials, which I'll get to in a second. Okay. The movie was then adapted into a TV series that ran in 1986 on Cinemax. And I think this TV series was the one that I saw because at the time they used to sometimes take this, like the cable TV series and would run them. I think because Cinemax and CBS were both owned by Viacom. I could be totally making oh, this up. Okay. CBS would run some like heavily edited Cinemax series like late at night Mm -hmm. because I remember I would stay up late to watch Max Hedgem and I remember almost nothing about the show other than it was creepy and weird (laughs) right very cyberpunk um but Max Hedgem the character like the show was like popular but it was still kind of pretty niche but then Mm -hmm. the character became this like 1980s icon Mm -hmm. so there was a Christmas special what (laughs) <laughs> which I don't remember at all. But there was a Max Hedrum Christmas special. Uh-huh. He also had a talk show for a while. I also don't remember this. Okay. I've got to imagine it was sort of something like Space Goes Coast to Coasty or something. Okay. And then he had a later spinoff of the original show. Okay. Which I also think I watched, but I think I like mixed them all up in my head. So I don't remember what was what. I think where he really became this phenomenon was from the Coca-Cola commercials where he actually became the spokesman for New Coke. If you guys remember New Coke. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Basically new like 
Coca-Cola tried to change their formula. Everyone hated it. They went back to their original formula, but they were still trying to sell this new formula of Coca-Cola. So they were calling it new Coke. And they actually incorporated Max Headroom as this almost like making fun of like the whole idea of new Coke to have this crazy character be the spokesman for it. Mm-hmm. Good morning, class. Coca-Cola chief. The study of... Good taste. In fact, the taste that stands the test. Yes! The test where new Coke takes on Pepsi, i.e. That's as in... The new Coke pop quiz. Coca-Cologist! All others pay attention. When Coke did take on Pepsi in nationwide tests, more people chose Coke over Pepsi. And that's where... That's my first real clear memory of Max Hedrick, where those commercials i don't even remember i just remember sitting on the little like step stool chair in the kitchen in my childhood home and like my mom had a little tv in the kitchen so she could watch the news while she was making dinner and stuff and watching it on there but i like i couldn't tell you i mean it was probably it was had to have almost been the new coke commercials yeah I mean, I, I, I mean, I know your mom a little bit. I have a hard time seeing her as like a hardcore Max she, Hedrick fan. <laughs> like, well, she was probably like, she was probably like, what the hell are you watching? Like, get that, turn that off. But I seem yeah. to remember it being more of a show than that. Like, because I would also watch like Moonlighting while she was making dinner and stuff. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I mean, um, it could have been the talk show, which, like I said, I don't remember at maybe all. Maybe it was but that. It, but apparently it was pretty popular. Okay. Where he wow. would literally okay. like interview celebrities and stuff. It's very strange. <laughs> I, I have completely, again, this is like a total Mandela effect. Like I, yeah. I have completely fabricated memories of this thing then. Cause I'm, right. I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, rem- well, I, it definitely, I mean, it definitely was like for our childhood, you know, we both would have been nine, 10 years old. Mm-hmm. When Max Hedrum was really popular. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it was a thing. It was like, you know, the Bart Simpson on the t-shirts with the cowabunga mm-hmm. and all, you know, mm-hmm. eat my shorts, eat my yep. shorts. Like Max Hedgen was like right in the middle of that. Spuds McKenzie, all of those things. Oh God. Uh, <laughs> okay. All, all the youngins are like, what the fuck are they talking about? Um, you need to stop saying that. <laughs> you need to stop making it out. Like a, we are OLDs and two, <laughs> like we have a bunch of 16 year olds listening to this podcast that's, that's that are like, fuck these true. old people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I do, I do think that like things like Max Hedrum, which were like super big parts of our childhood yes. really have like fallen off the radar. Yes. So I think absolutely. if you're even there. 10 years younger than us, you probably, I mean, you would know Bart Simpson, obviously, and you might even know Spuds McKenzie. Cause I think they were selling the toys for like a super long time. But like Max Hedrum is one of those things that like, it was huge for a minute and then it was gone. Yeah. yeah. Let us know in the comments if yeah. you, if you are firmly millennial like mid-millennial right that would have to be mid-millennials mid-millennial and down and say. down if you are aware of or remember or understand anything that scotty and i are talking <laughs> right <laughs> ever on I mean, this podcast. <laughs> yeah <laughs> i i would imagine like particularly for millennials i don't know about gen z if we have any gen z listeners but i think millennials if you google max hedrum and see the picture you'd probably be like oh yeah because i think it was still you know it's just one of those pop cultural things that was around but it seemed like by like the early 90s it was pretty much done yeah also the character of max hedrum was parodied by cartoonist gary trudeau on doonesbury he created a character named ron headrest the doonesbury guy is a tool right isn't he 
No, I well, who am I, I thinking? He of? could be. You're thinking of the Dilbert guy. Thank you. Yes, that yeah. is who I'm thinking of. Okay. Yeah, no, no, the Doonesbury <laughs> guy. He's married to who is he married to? Some like super famous TV journalist. I can't remember who. I'm cool. Totally, okay. I feel bad. I'm forgetting her name. She was like huge when we were kids. I think she's she might be retired now. I think he's. Still, I think Doonesbury's still going. But I'm gonna look it up while you talk. So let's talk about the signal intrusion. So so there was this thing called Max Hedgum that was big part of pop culture. And then one night, November 22nd, 1987, somebody pirated the signal for two different TV stations in Chicago. So the first signal intrusion occurred during the sports segment of WGN's nine o'clock news. So for 15 seconds, the screen went black. And then a person wearing a Max Hedrum mask and sunglasses appeared in front of this, like I said, this corrugated metal panel Mm -hmm. accompanied by like this really harsh buzzing sound. There was no dialogue. Nothing was spoken. This lasted for 28 seconds. The WG engineers were like scrambling to figure out what was going on. And they figured out that they could just switch the broadcast band of the transmitter. Mm -hmm. And so they would just like switch the band, cut off this signal, went back to the news station where the sports anchor was just like trying to do his fucking job mm-hmm. he, he came back on it his name was dan roan he was the sports anchor for wg and he came back on there and he was like well if you're wondering what's happened so am i <laughs> oh wow and then he joked about computers going wild and continued his broadcast so i think at this point they were thinking like it might have just been some like cross signal or something some little fluke type of thing but later that night on the local PBS station during an airing of a Doctor Who episode called The Horror of Fang Rock. Mm-hmm. And this is just kind of perfect that this broke in, in the middle of Doctor Who, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was a second intrusion from the same masked person. So this time the person talked through distorted audio. He began ranting about WGN sportscaster Truck Swirsky, who he called a, quote, frickin' liberal. That is stupid. You should talk often with the old ones of your tribe. And then he held up a Pepsi can and said, catch the wave. This was Max Hedrum's <laughs> catchphrase for the new Coke ads. Um, he also flipped off the camera using what looked like a hollowed out dildo saying it on, <laughs> I'm sorry. On your face there. Hold up. Like he <laughs> flipped off the camera and on his middle finger was a dildo. I think, yeah, he holds up. I'll see if I can find the image, but he holds up his hand, <laughs> like the middle finger, but there's like a just giant dildo sitting on his middle finger. Okay, okay. He sang and hummed the theme song to the old TV series Clutch Cargo. Then he pretended to take a dump in front of the camera, Mm -hmm. mooned the camera while saying, oh no, they're coming to get me, quote unquote, as some off-camera female began spanking him with a fly swatter. I remember that. Yeah. And and all of this, I think you can find both of these signal intrusion videos on uh, YouTube. Which is, so, how did they, how, how did they Well, because I think all this stuff was being recorded to tape, like all the news okay. broadcasts and stuff. Okay. So it just like ended up on the tape. So it's in the whatever PBS and WGN library and someone. I just have YouTube. to say they kept this, but they didn't keep Sam Cook's performance right? of a change is going to come on the car on the tonight. I mean, show. we are, we are talking, you know, 30 some years later. Uh-uh. We're talking two decades later. <laughs> yeah, I guess you're right. Two decades, but still that's, I mean, I have a feeling, I have no idea. I'm just speculating, but I have a feeling during the Sam Cook days, 
Yeah. They were probably not archiving stuff very carefully. I think true. by the this time we get true. to the late 80s, they are saving things because now everything's being filmed on true. video and everything. This um, is but, true. And but you're right. Yes. It technically is closer to three decades than it is because this was late 80s, right? This is 1987. So it's like 25 years. Yeah. Sam Cooke was 62, 63. All right. Yeah. Fine. Fine. I rescind my statement. <laughs> but still, I mean, it is a shame <laughs> that we yeah. lost Sam Cooke's performance. And, yeah. But we have this dude pretending to take a dump in front of the camera and getting spanked <laughs> with voice water <laughs> preserved for posterity. Just Let's just be glad this was not included on the Voyager Golden Record. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is not what we need to be sending out into the universe. Exactly. Um, so this intrusion lasted about 90 seconds. Okay. Because the PBS station had no engineers on duty. And so they were scrambling, they were scrambling to get someone there uh. who could switch this band. They finally managed to do it, but it was long after the signal had stopped. So the signal basically broke in and it was like a 90 second thing. And then it was over before the engineers even like had a chance to do anything. The FCC then said if caught, the perpetrators would face prison time and a maximum fine of $100,000. But they were never caught. So nobody knows who perpetrated the Max Hedrum signal intrusion or why, whether it was a prank, whether it was a political protest. There are all sorts of conspiracy theories. I'm not going to go into them because they're pretty uniformly stupid from what I saw. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> But I mean, the, the probably the least stupid is that it was some sort of like punk rock anarchist collective or something okay. like that seems maybe plausible. OK, I think it's most likely that it was a prank. OK, you know, uh, but no one knows how they did it, where their signal came from, how they were able to bust into two, two major networks broadcasts. Mm -hmm. It's not easy to do, um, but they were never caught. And then the statute of limitations ran out in 1992. So I'm just going to put it out there. Uh, Max Hedrum signal intrusion guy. If you're a listener, just come clean. Let us Hit know. Us because up. No, one, no one can do anything to you now. You're in the clean. Yeah. We want to know. Well, we won't tell a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like tell... we'll probably put it on the podcast, but <laughs> yes, but we will keep your identity under wraps, but within that know that Scotty and I will probably at least tell a couple of people. Yeah. <laughs> but we won't we won't share your identity with the uh, with our audience. Yeah, I we mean think. like like yeah, we think. <laughs> like the the mysterious song that you did. Like mm -hmm. I mean this is just one of those things where I'm dying to know yeah. who this was and why they did it and yeah. I also really don't want to know at the same time. Like I mm. kind of love that the mystery still remains. Yeah. So that is the story of the Max Hedrum signal intrusion. That's fantastic. And still, and I, and again, I don't know why it's so creepy. I don't, I, but it creeps the crap out of me. I've got to be honest. You know what I think it is in a way is because if you look at the quality of the VHS tape, it kind of has the look of a snuff film or like what you imagine <gasps> a snuff film would be. It's very grainy, very mm -hmm. like, looks like it's in someone's basement somewhere. Mm -hmm. um the audio like i said it's like full of buzzes it's very harsh mm -hmm. um and there's also just something like as much as like i sort of love people being like fuck the man and like overthrow the system with your you know max headroom like dildo or whatever but like at the same time it's like whenever someone like does that it is creepy because it's like you know we get so used to the rules being the rules and then someone goes right. out and breaks the rules you know right 
Yeah. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. And if, I don't know, it just, it doesn't seem like breaking into a TV station is something that's very accessible. Like I mean, maybe it's a lot simpler than I think it is. I don't think so. And I think particularly at the time, I mean, I think if you had like a powerful enough transmitter, you could do it, but mm. like to get a transmitter powerful enough to break into WGN's transmission and their mm -hmm. transmitter apparently was at the top of the Sears tower. So, you know, like to be able to, you know, that's broadcasting out over the whole region to be able to mm -hmm. like interrupt that you had to have a really powerful transmitter. And like, it's not something you go down to radio shack and buy, you know, <laughs> <laughs> one would hope that it's not yeah. something that you can just head on down to your local radio shack yeah and pick up wow that's so weird so yeah there's a part of me that really respects these people for doing it mm -hmm. um, and there's a part of me that like i'm like you i find it really creepy yeah i just think it's i think it's super creepy i think it's yeah. like really really creepy Okay, so March is Women's History Month, mm -hmm. um, and uh, we haven't really had a ton of, I was going to say chances to do it, but that's not true. Our just stories just haven't really had anything to do with that lately. Um, but so I'm going to touch on a uh, little women's history cool. uh, for my first story. So sources for this are uh, Wikipedia, an article in the New York Times, and a fascinating Twitter account that I just discovered that's called On This Day She. And the mm -hmm. whole thing about this Twitter account is putting women back into the history books. Oh, nice. So every, like, uh, when they tweet, it'll be like on this day and such and like on in such and such year, so-and-so did this thing. And it's, you know, just sort of like shining light on, on cool women in history. Cool. So I'm going to talk to you guys about Don Steele studio chief. Don Leslie Steele was born on August 19th, 1946. Uh, and she was an American film exec and one of, one of few women to run a major Hollywood studio. Yeah. I she, think I've heard of her, but continue. I'm not I'm sure you have. Yeah. yeah. Uh, she was born to Russian Jewish immigrants in the Bronx. Her father, whose actual last name was Spielberg, although there's no apparent relation mm. to Steven Spielberg. He was a zipper salesman and semi-professional <laughs> weightlifter who went by the stage name, the man of steel. And he actually nice. changed his name for his, his weightlifting career. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, when Dawn was nine, her father had a nervous breakdown. And so her mother mm. became her mother, Lillian became the family's sole source of income. Dawn went to both Boston university and NYU, but she didn't graduate from either. Hey, BU. Hey, oh, pride. <laughs> Go terriers. Um, okay. Yeah, is it really the, the fighting ter the fighting yeah. terriers? Yep, it's <laughs> an interesting mascot. Awesome. Okay, <laughs> uh, so she went on to have like she's a cool a cool lady. She went on to have a pretty fascinating career, which included being a sports writer for Major League Baseball Digest and the NFL in New York. Oh, cool. uh, she worked as a receptionist in the garment district for a little bit. Uh, she also was a low she had a low level marketing gig at penthouse magazine she told her folks that she was working at mademoiselle magazine <laughs> she was doing this yeah. while working at penthouse and answering the phone she noticed that the amaryllis plants looked really phallic uh mm -hmm. right before they bloomed so she hired an artist to sort of exaggerate that look and she wrote her own copy for an ad that read quote grow your own all it takes <laughs> is six night six dollars 98 cents and a lot of love and the plant became so popular that penthouse couldn't keep it in stock oh wow like just phallic looking plant some <laughs> clever copy and all these dudes reading penthouse were like give me that penis plant 
are they like are those advertisements like super pornographic or is it just more suggestive you know i don't know i should go and look them up i was gonna say if they're not too bad that would we should put that in social media (laughs) i'll look and see i mean i don't think it's you know i don't think it's it's probably not like and like the amaryllis like going into a donut or anything like it's it's probably just if it's more like (laughs) wink wink nudge nudge kind of thing (laughs) i don't know i'll have to look that up i should have done that but i did not there's also a whole story about her making toilet paper that had the gucci logo on it (laughs) and like she ended up getting signed or getting sued by the design house etc like it was this whole thing a little rebellious yeah yeah she was this like scrappy entrepreneur woman when the whole toilet paper thing was happening her her lawyer guy by the name of sid davidoff was you know he was like putting the story out there and it became like the toilet paper case and all this stuff and like (laughs) some cartoonist even depicted it as the house of gucci being the sort of like goliath and don Steele as the sort of like david character very it ended up settling out of court um things always do (laughs) yep they always do in 1978 she had just ended a 10-month marriage and she asked sid davidoff her lawyer Mm -hmm. in the gucci case if he might put out a call to his friend jeffrey katzenberg over at paramount studios yep she was quickly given a marketing job and she was off to the races uh she was once asked why hollywood heavy hitters like Katzenberg and Michael Eisner, who Michael Eisner is obviously, he doesn't anymore, right? But he ran Disney for quite some time. Yeah. I I don't think he's at Disney anymore. He's somewhere else now, but yeah. He was like, I remember Michael Eisner running Disney when we were like kids, I think. Yeah. And I feel like Michael Eisner was running Disney when it was like Little Mermaid, Aladdin, The Lion King, like in the sort of resurgence of Disney. Disney. Yeah, 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 yeah. So somebody asked her once why, you know, people like Katzenberg and Michael Eisner did so much to advance her career. And I'm, I would be willing to bet that there was some pretty heavy handed subtext to that question. You know, like they were like, why you're a woman and why are these men doing this stuff for you? And she replied, quote, I was funny. I wasn't heavy furniture. I made them laugh and entertained them. The other Mm. thing was that I could identify a good idea. Not a lot of people can do that. That was my gift. Nice. Of course, she developed a reputation for being abrasive. Um, Her nicknames were Steel Dawn and The Tank. Mm. The reputation hurt her feelings pretty badly Uh, and her autobiography. This is the best, but like there is no more Hollywood-esque title for an autobiography (laughs) than this one. Uh, Her autobiography was called They Can Kill You, But They Can't Eat You, Lessons from the Front. Um, (laughs) But in that book, she wrote, it was very painful. It came from guys who wanted to kill me. In some ways, I was curt because there was an unbelievable amount to accomplish in a day. Look, I'm not Mary Poppins, but I think I functioned with integrity. Yeah. She was a driving force in getting Flashdance made, which if you don't know Flashdance is about a female welder who wants to be a dancer. Right, 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 right. Mm-hmm. And she followed that up with Footloose. Yes. And then I think pretty closely after that was Top Gun. So, so she was just yeah. cranking out hit was she? Was she, well, I don't know if, I don't know if you would have stumbled on this. Was she working as a producer or as like a development exec at the studio? She was working. Okay. I'm not quite sure what the years were that those movies came out, but she eventually got 
kicked up to president of production. Okay, so she's probably an exec. So that, I mean, that's, yeah, that's pretty powerful. Yeah, but she started out doing like marketing stuff for them. Right. Um, another one of the movies that she had a hand in was Cool Runnings, um, <laughs> yeah. and and like Flashdance, Cool Runnings. Like these were the projects that she was really interested in. Her stories about outsiders with outlandish ambition who overcome numerous obstacles to get what they want. Like she really wanted to get movies like that made. Mm-hmm. Um, if you haven't seen Cool Runnings, please go and find it because it yeah. is awesome i don't think i've ever seen it you haven't i saw it in the theaters no i think by the time that movie came out i was like so steeped in being like the horror movie guy that i was like what's this but like i actually have heard and read over the years that it's actually a really good movie it's one of those i've always sort of thought i should watch and And i feel like because john i feel like john candy isn't it i think so yes and i feel like it was one of his last movies right 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 it's about a jamaican bobsledding team who yeah, went on to a, win the Olympics. Yeah, true story. Um, if you're unfamiliar with the movie Cool Runnings, pretty good time. I feel like they were talking about remaking that movie not too long ago. Mm, it feels like one maybe just leave alone. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Uh, Okay, so by 1985, she's been named the president of production at Paramount, and that makes her one of the highest ranking female executives in Hollywood. Right. In 1987, as she was in the hospital recovering from the birth of her daughter, she got word that Frank Mancuso, chairman of Paramount, and Ned Tannen, chairman of the Motion Picture Group, had had her fired. What? Yeah. I mean, that's a very common Hollywood story, but still. Right. They just like BT dubs. They didn't call her to tell her that she had been fired. She's like, you know, laying up in the hospital, recuperating from having a baby from birthing a human. Mm -hmm. Uh, And her husband came into her hospital room with a newspaper tucked under his arm and said, quote, I don't know how to tell you this, babe, but you were fired while you were in labor. Jesus. Steele says of the news, quote, I remember thinking, I will not cry. I will not let them make me cry. I mean, that the way that that went down doesn't surprise me because, yeah. of, you know, there's there's the whole, like, have you heard the whole idea of the Hollywood no? Uh-uh. It was like, how do you say no in Hollywood? You say maybe? Like, no one uh-huh. ever wants to take responsibility for anything. Mm. So, yeah. Okay. I'm just saying, like... <laughs> before after had the conversation with her like yeah you know not when she was like in the hospital literally pushing out a kid like that's extremely shitty yeah yeah yeah. i also feel like given her reputation as as sort of a like a ball buster i'm like you guys were fucking scared to tell her to her face absolutely you guys were 100 scared to be like you were fired because you're scared of what she was going to do to you yeah just yell at you yeah. Like that's yeah. enough because you're a bunch of cowards. Maybe go. Yeah. So that happened. And what she went and did was she became head of Columbia Studios within six months. <laughs> nice. Yep. She became head of Columbia Studios six months later yeah. with a six month old baby. Yeah. Like she, that, that's like double finger, double middle double, fingers, double dildo finger. Yeah. That's a double dildo finger send off. <laughs> That's a Hollywood goodbye. Yeah. It's a <laughs> oh my God. All right. All right. Moving on. Moving on. Um, Steele said this about her career and women in Hollywood quote. I must tell you, I did feel threatened by other women in those early years. I was so busy climbing up this ladder, staying above the water. If there was only room for one woman in the room, I wanted to be her. I'm not yeah. proud of it. 
I certainly don't feel that way now. It was an absolute evolution for me. That I, mean, I was just ahead. gonna say, like, I appreciate the self-awareness there. Yeah. And that is not her her legacy. Writer Nora Ephron, who I, she's written a lot of stuff, guys. I yeah, look at it. I am DBR. But writer Nora Ephron, <laughs> uh, who was given her first directing job by Steele, mm-hmm. said, quote, Dawn certainly wasn't the first woman to become powerful in Hollywood, but she was the first woman to understand that part of her responsibility was to make sure that eventually there were lots of other powerful women. Mm-hmm. She hired women as executives, women as producers and directors, women as marketing people. The situation we have today with a huge number of women in powerful positions is largely because of Dawn Steele. And that's my my little, uh, my little women's history month, a shout out to Dawn Steele. She died. Oh, I didn't write down the date, but she died fairly young. Uh, she died at the age of 51. Mm. They found a tumor in oh, her brain no. and, uh, the type of cancer that she had ugh, in the New York times article. It's lovely. Uh, Cause the, the New York times article is sort of like her big obituary. Right. Mm-hmm. And they're interviewing her husband and her husband is like, she was amazing. She, you know, had this brain cancer that they said the longest anybody survives with this is six months. And, 20 months later, here she, like, here she was, she was a force. Yeah. So yeah, there's a little bit about some women in filmmaking. I 100% knew who she was. Once you started telling the story, once you said BU, because I, I didn't remember the name, uh-huh. but when I was going to BU, she was one of the people that was often talked about as being like, a big BU alum. Right. Yeah, worked, of course. Of course they wanted the to. Right. Yeah, but she never graduated from there. She never got her degrees. Yeah, but I mean, they, you know, like any college, they're, gonna la- they're probably trying to give her some like honorary doctorate or something just dude a theater that i worked at had and now that i think about it i'm sure i hope that headshot came down quick (laughs) but uh a theater that i worked at had a lot of famous alum because it was very old theater and they had kevin spacey's headshot Mm. In yeah. the lobby now, and like this also, I mean, it was people like uh, Hume Cronin. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like Jessica Tandy may have worked there as well. These mm-hmm. are people who had worked at this theater. They had been company members. Kevin Spacey had like come through with like a touring production or something. Yeah. So, oh, I'm, but I'm sure they've memory hold that headshot. <laughs> <laughs> They're just that, like, oh god, in the middle of the dumpster. night. Right. I, I mean, yeah. I hope. I hope they have. Yeah. And as far as that, like, legacy you're talking about with Don Steele, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think I talked about it on the podcast. Like, and again, I have no data to back any of this up. This is just purely my anecdotal experience. Yeah. But when you go to meetings in Hollywood, like I think I said, a yeah, lot you of were old, saying a lot of the older executives are still, I, I would say, predominantly men, at least again, anecdotal experience. But the younger up and coming executives, it sure felt like at least 50 60 or 50 50, if not 60 40. Oh, I was like, women. 50, 50 is. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, 50, Scotty, 50 is not we, bad. we know you're bad at math, Scotty, but <laughs> that's not a thing. That doesn't equal. Um, yeah, yeah. And that's pretty, that's pretty cool. It's also interesting, of course, to see that a woman, you know, that of course, like I had this conversation with a lot of people, granted, this is an extraordinarily smaller scale. This is definitely like on the micro, micro, micro level. Mm -hmm. Um, but when I started Duke city rep, I had a lot of people that wanted to tell me like, you know, I had, I had a, I had a lot of arguments of both sides, like, you know, be careful and don't be mean and you don't Mm want to burn any bridges 
and you're so new and you're so young. And then I had other people being like, people aren't going to pay any attention to you. So you've got to go out there. You've got to be a real bitch. And I was like, I hate that. These are my two choices. Right. And I hate that, like whatever path I choose to go down, that that means that that's the, I can only ever be kind and sweet and polite and accommodating, or I can only be like a raging ball buster. Um, and I kind of, I hated that. Well, and the fact that they were, you know, calling her the tank and saying how abrasive she was, I mean, as always, it's just like, if she was a man, no one would have thought twice. No, no. I want to do, I'm forgetting her name for a moment. It's actually a tragic story, so I don't want to give it away because I want to do it on the podcast at some point. But the woman who discovered the Ramones and became a major record producer sounds like I think her kind of upbringing was probably similar to Don Steele's and they're probably roughly the same time period. Mm -hmm. But she also was very much like, tart as a ball buster and a bitch and all that stuff and yeah it's the same thing it's like you know it's just because she was a woman who like you know i'm sure she was demanding as anyone in that position is like yeah know, yeah you have it's... to have a certain kind of type a personality to succeed man or woman but but of course the women get called bitches and... yeah and it's it's really it's again like anecdotally it's right. really weird to see how you know if a <laughs> Not that I'm like throwing out a lot of orders, but if a directive is given by me, Mm -hmm. if I don't say it with, and this isn't always the case, but it has been, it has sometimes been the case where if I give that directive in, you know, a human way, Mm -hmm. it's seen as like a suggestion, like maybe you could, if you get around to it. And so if I say, Hey, no, I'm not fucking around. Like you need to do this. Then people are like, Whoa, 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 Whoa. Like, you know, just like your tone. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, as we discussed last week with Kane, you know, I'm, I can be fairly grumpy and opinionated and whatnot. I've never had that kind of tone policing. Yeah. It's, it's a really weird thing because I, I frequently think of the part and it's so silly, but the part in Pulp Fiction where they bring in Harvey Keitel's character (laughs) and uh, yeah. Yeah. And I think it's John Travolta. Who's like a please would be nice. And Harvey Keitel is like, Hey, if I'm hurt with you, it's because I have a job to do. And that sort of became my mantra, especially in the early years of DC here is that I was like, I don't have time. Like if it makes you feel better, assume that I'm putting a please and thank you on the end of it. But like, I can't sit here and like, you know, for lack of a better phrase, tickle your balls while I need you to get this (laughs) shit done. Like I need you to get this shit done. I'll tickle your balls later. Um, (laughs) There was never any tickling of balls. I'm sorry, mama. Um, Ever, ever, ever. But you know, it was just, it was, it's a a very frustrating thing to sit there and to be like, how do I say something? The the sheer emotional labor of having to translate everything you say so that people take you seriously, but also you don't get a reputation as a bitch is, it's just exhausting. Yeah. And like I said, that's not something I've ever done or felt like I had to do. Yeah. In my career. So yeah, that's pretty telling. But Don Steele, I'm going to have to go back and read. I'm going to read that. What was the name of the autobiography? (laughs) The name of the autobiography is They Can Kill You, But They Can't Eat You. Lessons from the Front. I'm going to have to read that. That sounds amazing. Yeah, I bet it's I bet it's a trip. (laughs) Well, I'm going to get creepy here with my next story. Creepy slash like, uh, what the fuck is this even about? Fantastic, because um, my second story is also creepy. Oh, nice. Perfect. Nice. Skippers, skip it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to tell you about the Lordsburg Door. Yes. Local uh, New Mexico lore, 
I guess I should mm-hmm. say. Now, this is one of those weird, like, so my sources were are, were Wikipedia, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I'm putting this in quotes, an article. It's really more of a blog post called uh, from etcetrasblogspot.com okay. slash Lordsburg Doors by a guy named Mike Smith. This is from 2007. Another one from another blog called Desert of the Real Economic Analysis by Rob Feitner. The okay. article is called The Lordsburg Door Will Just Not Stay Shut. Mm. And then from another blog, I think it's a blog called enigmos.com. That's Lordsburg Door, New Mexico's portal through space time. Mm. This is one of those stories. I feel like it might be a little bit like Chupacabra, where when you, you started looking into Chupacabra, it really seemed like kind of an internet phenomenon. Because mm-hmm. like there is so little about this. This was a really kind of hard one to research. So the only things I can say with any sort of, I don't know what the word would be certainty certainty is the stuff i'm going to tell you about the town of lordsburg which is okay. pulled from wikipedia <laughs> okay everything else in here like largely could be bullshit mm-hmm. but this is one of those stories like i know it didn't start with the internet because i remember hearing about the lordsburg door when i was a little kid mm. and then i kind of forgot about it for years and then my friend Corey, hey Corey, i know you're listening uh hi Corey. He, he mentioned it, I don't know, 10 years ago. Like, hey, did you know there was like a portal to hell in Lordsburg? And I was like, oh, yes, I remember hearing about this. So it's it's a story that's been around, mm-hmm. but there's really very little information on it. So, okay, Fantastic. so let's talk about the Lordsburg door. So uh, the town of Lordsburg, it's the county seat of Hidalgo County, which is in far southern New Mexico. We're basically talking about the boot heel. So for oh, those, of, yeah. Mm-hmm. So for those of you guys not from New Mexico, I'm, if you look at New Mexico, it's like a big square with this little boot heel hanging off the bottom. Mm-hmm. That's Hidalgo County. Okay. It goes, it's there, and then it goes up a little bit. Lordsburg, the city, is kind of just above the boot heel. Okay. It's population of about twenty seven hundred and ninety seven people. I think of the last census, and it's. You know, typical to a lot of these kind of dusty desert towns, you know, the population's dropping. People are moving away. It's it's yeah. slowly kind of becoming abandoned. Yeah. So here's a quote. This is from this et cetera's blog. It says, the businesses of Lordsburg's Main Street sit mostly abandoned, and all around the town, the desert swirls away into flatness, careens toward a horizon of ancient and eroded hills, and warps into a stark and gorgeous world of sand and cactus in which things like cities and government and the written word can sometimes start to feel like a barely remembered dream. Mm. And then it continues. In such open desert, in countries such as this, there's often a feeling of life gone atemporal, independent of time, a feeling that isn't dispelled upon talking with the locals. So there is a sense when you go to a place like Lordsburg and I would say like the four corners of the state has a similar feel Mm. where you know it's this big empty open desert that feels like time has kind of stopped and you just have this feeling of like slight unreality there Mm -hmm. you know so the town was founded in 1880 as a stop on the Southern Pacific Railroad Mm. it's actually the birthplace of the New Mexico state song Oh Fair New Mexico Heyo. Uh, which was written by Pat Garrett's daughter. Pat <gasps> Garrett, of course, being the guy who killed Billy the Kid. Can we play a little bit of it right here? Under a sky of azure, where balmy breezes blow, kissed by the golden sunshine, is Nuevo Mexico. 
Not so cool was that it was also the site of some of the Japanese internment during World War II. About 1,500 Japanese Americans were interned there. And it's actually the site of an infamous murder of two internees by an army private. Oh, that fucking sucks. That sucks. But then it became, later on, it became a popular rest stop for Black Americans when they were traveling mostly from the South to the West Coast during segregation because in Lordsburg was one of the few motels at that time period that would accept Black guests. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Okay, so the Lordsburg door. Hit me with it. So Lordsburg itself, long before I think people were talking about this, like, door. It was known for a lot of strange sightings. People claimed that they saw the Thunderbird in the desert around Lordsburg. And if you Mm. guys don't know anything about the Thunderbird, uh, Google it. But this is, we're talking Native American lore about Mm. essentially a giant bird. But other people later on claimed that they saw pterosaurs, like pterodactyls flying around. So when you get onto some of these like tinfoil message boards, they're like, you know, the people who saw the Thunderbird and they didn't know what it was back in the day, maybe it was actually pterodactyls flying around. Because we didn't know any better. They just look like giant birds. People I mean, there are, have been a hella dinosaurs found in New Mexico. Like, yeah. hella dinosaurs. So... I was just totally, like, independent of this story. Because I was doing research, actually, for a short story I'm working on. Mm-hmm. I was reading up about Elephant Butte, which is, um, like, a big lake in southern New Mexico. It's a big reservoir. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And apparently, I think this was very recently, some hike. I think it was 2014, some hikers were, like, hiking on the Elephant Butte itself. The butte mm-hmm. is basically, like, a big volcanic... It's now an island in the middle of the lake, but it's said to look like an elephant laying on its side. I mm-hmm. don't see it. I see a big rock. Oh, I see you know. it. Oh, do you? Mm-hmm. You'll have to like, we'll have to look at the picture and have to point out to me the elephant in it because I've never been able to see it. But apparently 2014, some hikers were like, or campers or somebody was up there. Oh, I think it said they were doing a bachelor party and they <laughs> stumbled on the perfect skull and tusks of a mastodon. What the Yeah, fuck? which is just kind of cool because it's elephant butte. Yeah. Find an ancient elephant. But anyway, but yeah, mm-hmm. like di- uh, New Mexico is full of dinosaurs. Like mm-hmm. really all of the West, the mountain West of this country is just full of dinosaur bones. Mm-hmm. But in Lordsburg, they're saying they actually see actual pterodactyls, pterosaurs flying around. Nutty. Okay. People have also like hiking in the area have found rocks with strange glyphs on them that do not appear to be related to like the local indigenous cultures. Mm. Uh, They've seen like Egyptian hieroglyphs on these rocks, things like that. I was not able to find any images to confirm Uh. this. And again, like that's, like I said, all of this stuff is just stuff you read on like message boards and blogs and stuff. So it's Mm -hmm. like, I don't know how verifiable any of this is. And then at least since the 1990s, local ranchers have claimed that they've seen a lot of UFOs in the area. So this starts to feel a little Mothman-y where it's like strange sightings. And then of course the UFOs pop up. Mm Mm-hmm. So two ufologists, and I'm going to put that in heavy air quotes, right? <laughs> uh, particularly this one guy, Ramon Ortiz, let's put a pin in him because I'm not sure about this guy. And then Benji Medina claimed to have photographed and filmed unusual air traffic over the city, 
showing what looks like UFOs that zip, hover, split into, change shape in midair. What? They don't appear to be connected to the local airport or the nearby White Sands Missile Range, which is where Mm -hmm. they do a lot of like experimental aircraft testing. And like you and I were talking off, we were texting off podcast earlier today (laughs) about conspiracy theories. And I was saying, I've always felt like, like Roswell is as likely to have been a like experimental aircraft you know military Mm -hmm. aircraft that was being tested and maybe crashed and they you know had to kind of come up with a cover story for it Mm -hmm. that seems as likely as aliens to me yeah so who knows you know there could be this could be something that's being tested but the way these things are described there's no known aircraft made by man that can you know split in two or change shape in the middle of the air things like that Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's an area full of weird phenomena. Yeah. So the Lordsburg door itself, it's also known as the Lordsburg gate. I always heard about, like, when I was a kid, I think I heard about, like, there's a door to hell in Lordsburg. <laughs> and then I think my friend Corey also was like, you know, there's a door to hell in Lordsburg, yep. outside of Lordsburg. When you read about it on these blogs, it's actually, they say it's a naturally occurring vortex or time portal. That bridges the past and the present and even possibly opens up into alternate dimensions. Mm-mm. No, thank you. So this Ramon Ortiz, this ufologist, mm-hmm. he says that the door stands in an area called Gold Gulch, which is near mile marker 17 on State Highway 90, which runs between Lordsburg and Silver City. Okay. But there are other accounts that say that the door is actually south of town. So if you go on, you know, this Gold Gulch is kind of north, I think sort of northwest of town. Mm -hmm. But a lot of other people say, no, it's actually south of town. So who knows? This is how this Ramon Ortiz describes the Lordsburg door. He says that it appears in this Gold Gulch as a small chair and table that are carved of rock and that an old tree stump sits just in front of it. And a human leg bone is jutting out of the tree stump. What the fuck? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is supposedly the result of someone who stepped either out of the door into our time period or through the door into somewhere else and got stuck in this tree. No. Like like the, the Philadelphia <laughs> experiment, which I'm going to do on the podcast at some point. <laughs> now he says, now this is where like this Ramon Ortiz starts getting a little bit suspicious to me because he says, well, I mean, don't go looking for the door because you can only see it by those who are, quote, wanted there. And it can only be opened with peacefully made burnt offering. I don't really know what that means, but probably some sort of sacrifice or symbolic sacrifice, you know? It could just be burning, like, you know, a flower or something. I'm not sure. Okay. And then it can only be closed by a sword. I don't know what, like, I mean, I don't know if it's just like you can go make a sword and close the door, if it's like Excalibur or what. Um, Just how did he find this out? I literally could not find any confirmation of (laughs) anyone saying anything about this except for Ramon Ortiz. (laughs) All right, Ramon. He also says that it is only one of seven such portals in the Boot Hill region. I'm sorry. Say that entire sentence over again. So Ramon Ortiz says that, well, the Lordsburg door is only one of seven portals in this entire Boot Hill region. And he claims that one of these portals happens just happens to be in his own basement i'm sorry (laughs) i am so sorry you can't sit there and say this is only one of seven portals in the boot hill region of so like portals are just everywhere like everywhere we're just all over including his own basement okay of course including his own basement Uh, okay so that's again (laughs) 
<laughs> like uh, I'm just gonna say, like weirdest thing believability scale. I'm putting the Lordsburg door at like maybe a one point three. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, let's, yes. let's let's hear a little bit more from uh, our good friend Ramon. Okay. He says, "This is his quote. He says, everything is coming through these doors, these gates. It's judgment day. Jesus is coming. So, you know, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> like what, Ramon? Like what? Like what is coming through these things? And if one is in your basement, wouldn't you move like, or like show it to somebody? Yeah, make get, like, get make some money. No, he's just like, trust me, I've got a portal to another dimension <laughs> in my basement. Like, totes telling the truth here. Um, no, Look, you can't if you see want it. to." <laughs> Look, maybe later on, you and me could go back to my house and I can show you my portal and my <laughs> yeah. sword collection. Is this is this whole thing just based on this dude's like pickup lines, like in bars? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. OK. Ooh, um, wow. But, you know, Ramon Ortiz is not the person who like like the stories of the Lordsburg door don't come from him. Right. Like there are a lot of people who say it. Like I think when you start hearing from him and then you dig deeper into the portals in his basement, there's seven. uh, You start, it reminds me of that dude. If you remember on the Mothman story, the guy who claimed the injured cold came. Yep. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, well, there's a bunch of people who saw this injured cold. But then this guy was like, and he took me to his home planet in a faraway galaxy. <laughs> like at some, some point you're like, okay, all right. Just pat you on the head and send you. Yeah. Away, yep. 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 But so other people have theorized that the Lordsburg door is actually the source of the aircraft that crashed at Roswell. Mm. Uh, they think it might've come through the door. Now this is interesting to me because if you go by again, back to the Mothman story, the idea that whatever we're seeing that are UFOs are not actually like interstellar flying between planets, but are actually coming through parallel dimensions. Mm-hmm. It's kind of interesting to think, well, there's this, portal to another dimension very close to where a ufo crashed Mm -hmm. there is a link there like i said i mean i've always thought i've never believed the weather balloon story i'm not gonna go off on the whole roswell thing but i've never believed the whole weather balloon story Uh uh-huh like the quote official story Mm -hmm. but i'm like i think it was just some like stealth bomber like prototype stealth bomber they were trying to make back in the 1940s and crashed it into the desert they're like um weather balloon you know yeah okay so in this blog desert of the real economic analysis i have it as dot blogspot.com pretty sure that's supposed to be blogspot an albuquerque economist named rob feitner has tried to investigate this lordsburg door he claims that he talked to a woman named helena hammer and hammer told him that ranchers have claimed that their hybrid high-grade cattle would wander off into the desert and then would disappear and be replaced by, quote, low-grade Mexican cattle. I'm just going to leave that right there because I think. Yeah, I think. There's a lot, yeah, of, there's a lot of subtext that we can all uh-huh. read the lines there, right? Mm-hmm. But this is what Feitner says from his blog. He says, apparently some cattle would enter the portal and others would exit. This replacement indicated that wrestling was not involved in the disappearance. So like cattle wrestlers weren't mm-hmm. coming out stealing cattle because the cattle thieves would not replace stolen cattle with inferior stock. Yeah. Now Feitner also put on his blog, he says the author has offered to meet with anyone that has knowledge of the location of the door. He recently discovered the identity of someone that knows the person that does know the location of the door. 
Uh-huh. He has discovered the identity of, quote, Joni, the person that told the author that the person that knows the location of the Lodesburg <laughs> door would not take the author to see the ephemeral portal. So when he's saying the author, he's talking about himself. Right. So Rob Feitner means Joni. Joni knows somebody who knows where the door is. Okay. Rob Feitner's like, hey, well, you know, tell him I want to see the door. So she's like, cool, I'll call him. And then she's like, mm, he's not going to show it to you. He said, uh, it continues, Joni says that the person with knowledge of the portal's location will still not reveal it to the author or even to Joni. So I don't know who this person is. Now, I had read years ago, reading up on the Lordsburg door, mm-hmm. something about there's supposedly, I think maybe in Deming, which is a nearby town, mm-hmm. a Sufi mystic who lives in Deming, who apparently knows where the Lordsburg door is. Again, pulling this off of fucking tinfoil hat websites right i wonder if this mysterious person that joni knows is the quote-unquote sufi mystic that lives in Deming. i don't know okay okay because i couldn't find it when i was trying to do the research for this now if you google lordsburg door you might find some videos so one is one it's called the entrance to the lordsburg door by a mysterious d-s-h-l-a-t-h-e-r so that's like the use it's like d schlather and then a mysterious woman named Joan K. So this could be Joni. Ooh, uh-huh. Um, so again, this Rob Feitner is saying, in September of 2007, the author made an unsuccessful road trip to Lordsburg to find the so-called Lordsburg door, an alleged space-time portal near Lordsburg, New Mexico. We came close to finding the location of the door when a gentleman at the Silver City Gem and Mineral Show gave us that name of someone that knew the location of the door. So I think this is how he met Joni. Numerous calls to this person have gone unanswered and an email from, quote, Joni advised the author that he is not worthy to be shown the location of the door. Okay. Who decides? Well, the, the Whoever this person is. Who also could very easily be this Ramon Ortiz who has, mm-hmm. has a portal in his basement. Right. Um, so despite a couple more entreaties, the author never heard from the person that allegedly knows the location of the door. And then, so the video, the entrance of the Lordsburg door that I've seen, because it's on YouTube. Mm-hmm. This is how it's described. The video is 48 seconds. There are two men in the video. It has no audio, although one of the men is speaking throughout much of the video. The speaking man wields a sword and marks out an area on the ground with the sword. The author will leave it to the readers to interpret and draw (laughs) conclusions from the video. I mean, the video is just like two guys. One guy's got a sword and that's like it. That's And then he just is like, draws it in the dirt. Like, here's the door. Then it's like done. No information on where it is. You don't see, you don't see a pterodactyl or anything. I mean, it's... (laughs) So, <laughs> so what the f- okay yeah. i'm over this okay. <laughs> yeah so you know the question is could this person be the person that knows the location of the lordsburg door could this be no. the person that mike smith of my strange new mexico blah 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 blah. no i mean no like no. the answers to all of this is no so i've always wanted i've like for years i've been like i need to like do this road trip down to Lordsburg and just drive around the desert looking for the Lordsburg door. The more I've read up on it, I'm like, this is not a fucking door. Like there's, there's <laughs> nothing down there. <laughs> Sorry, local New Mexico lore, but this one I'm saying. No. Debunked. Debunked. Okay. That is the largely uh, anticlimactic story <laughs> of the Lordsburg door. <laughs> wah, wah. Or trombone noises. Okay. We need we need a little uh, Price is Right losing horn I- right here. <laughs>
Okay. Oh my God. <laughs> wow. Okay. Moving on. Mine is mine is somewhat creepy, I guess, depending on, I guess, how you feel about things. So I'm going to talk to you about the curious case of the Pollock twins. Ooh. I think I know this one. And this comes from Historic Mysteries, the Occult Museum, and an article on medium.com. Full disclaimer, this could 100% be bullshit. Like all of it, 100% bullshit. Yeah. Totally fabricated. It could be 100% true. I I don't know. Who knows? Uh, Read. Readers, listeners, you decide. Okay, so our story begins with John and Florence Pollock of Hexham, England. They had two daughters, Joanna, 11, and Jacqueline, 6, who tragically died in a car accident on May 5th, 1957. John and Florence were devastated by the loss of their children, but they did manage to become pregnant again the year after the girl's death. Okay. Florence gave birth to identical twins, Jennifer and Jillian Pollock, on October 4th, 1958. And almost immediately, shit with the twins gets weird. Okay. As I said, they were identical, but they had different birthmarks. Jennifer had a birthmark on her waist that matched a birthmark her dead sister Jacqueline had had. In the same okay. spot. And she also had a birthmark on her forehead that looked like a scar Jacqueline had had on her forehead. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. Weird, but not the weirdest weird, thing. And oh, yeah. hey, I said the, I just said the name of the podcast. <laughs> now I've got to put a ding, ding, ding sound in there. Yes. Ding, 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 ding. Fantastic. Hooray. Okay. So weird, but not the weirdest thing. Um, when the twins were three months old, John mm-hmm. and Florence moved the family to Whitley Bay. Okay. And they lived there for a little bit. And two years later, so two, so the girls are two months and change. Uh-huh. They start asking for toys that they had never seen before that had never belonged to them. Toys that had actually belonged to their dead sisters. Wow. Yeah. Like asking for the toys by name. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's a little that's, creepy. That's um, more than a little. It's a little. Yeah, that's that's strange. It's definitely strange. So the family eventually moves back to Hexham, and it was then that Jennifer and Jillian, like, ugh, this is so strange. They started pointing out landmarks that their older sisters had known. Okay. Things like their school, places around town, stuff mm-hmm. like that. Again, they are a couple of years old at this point. They also began to panic when they would see car, like parked cars with the engines running, saying Mm. things like the car is coming to get us. Just Uh, a reminder, their older sisters had died in a car accident. Right. So these weird goings on continued until they were about five years old, which at, at which time the memories of their quote unquote previous lives faded and they went on to lead normal lives. Right. So basically the whole thing about this is, if you haven't caught on yet, is that Jennifer and Jillian were the reincarnated versions of Joanna and Jacqueline. Mm-hmm. That's a little, that's a little that's creepy. creepy as shit. Yeah. yeah. Dr. Ian Stevenson actually wrote about the twins as well as 13 other cases of reincarnation in his 1987 book titled Children Who Remember Previous Lives, A Question of Reincarnation. Mm -hmm. Stevenson studied reincarnation for 40 years. He sort of dedicated his career to it. And most of that time was spent in Asian cultures where belief in reincarnation is a lot more common. Right. Anywhere where you have uh, sort of like a 
a, I think this is right, right? Like Judeo-Christian beliefs are, are are prevalent. Like reincarnation is really not part of the equation. Well, it's, it's, it's considered blasphemy. Yeah. yeah, it's it's much more East, Eastern. Yeah, uh, talking Buddhism and Hinduism and whatnot. Mm-hmm. It's part of the religion. Yeah. yeah, and he focused specifically on children because they were less likely to lie about their experiences than adults. Yeah, there's a lot of stories of people being adults that were like, "I had this past life as a blah blah blah," and then it totally came out to mm-hmm. like, "Okay, no, you just looked all of this stuff up." Right. But ev- all of the children that he interviewed, like he he couldn't find that that stuff in them. Stevenson also found that in cultures where a belief in reincarnation was not prevalent, parents often discouraged their children from talking about their past lives. Yeah, that makes so, sense. Yeah. Quick sidebar to all of this. The dad, John, but obviously both parents were like devastated by the death of their girls. Right. As you know, of course, anybody would be of, of losing a family member, let alone a child. And he said some weird stuff in the time after their death, before the twins were born. Like he said that they would come back like the girls would come back to them. Hmm. Um, and he even said stuff like, watch, like Florence is going to, like she's going to have twins and that's when the girls will come back to us. Right. And then she ended up pregnant with twins. Like it's, it's weird. It's, it's yeah. a little, it's a little weird. Okay. So the stories of past lives of these kids that Stevenson had talked to are punctuated with details that the child in question would have no way of knowing. An example is the case of James Leininger, mm-hmm. who was born in 1998 in San Francisco. And And he started having terrible nightmares about plane crashes when he was about two years old. Uh Allegedly, the nightmares stemmed from memories of of a past life as a World War II pilot. James was able to tell his parents all about planes from that era. Uh, And James, yeah, James's parents weren't World War II buffs. They didn't keep books or materials about the war or planes or anything in their home. He just like had this information. The story of the Pollock twins. And of course, any story about reincarnation is always very like widely contested. People are like, no, that's not true either because they believe in the sort of, again, the Judeo-Christian idea of you die and then you go to heaven or that they're like, no, you die and you die. And that's it. There's no proof of reincarnation, but to me, I think the thought of reincarnation is kind of soothing. I do too. Like no real, no real death. Yeah. Yeah. No eternal damnation. It's just like, on to the next one. Right. Um, and that is the weird and mysterious tale of the reincarnation of the Pollock twins. I actually did know a little bit about that. I didn't know all the details, but mm-hmm. the reason, and I, and I knew about the kid who had the memories of being a fighter pilot because <laughs> both of those stories are cited as inspiration for a horror novel called Audrey Rose, uh, uh-huh. which was then turned into a movie. I want to say it's like the late seventies, early eighties. And I've, I've read the book. It's not a very good book to be honest, but just knowing some of the backstory of that book, I kind of stumbled on this story before, uh-huh. but that, I mean, it's like, you, you know, on one level you could say like this dad who was convinced that his daughters were going to be, yeah. are they like, you know, again, as a confirmation, confirmation bias are they cherry picking things but then you get into the specificity of some of it yeah like the landmarks and the birthmarks yeah there's definitely some really weird stuff in there uh you can go down some reddit rabbit holes where people talk about it and it's really interesting because the majority of the people on the reddit rabbit holes are like no like and it's it's all very funny too because they're like Mm -hmm. "Mm," like what did they say were they just like i want the doll with the blonde hair were they like i want the doll with the blonde hair who's wearing a blue skirt with the purple hearts on it and it's like well i don't know but (laughs) Like, yeah, 
Why are you so? I think okay. I, here, here's here, here's my real talk. Yeah. <laughs> here's here's my hot take. I think atheists are just as annoying as religious zealots. I, agree. I would much because they're so like. How do you know? And I'm like, how do you know? Yeah. Like you, th- like what is it? People that are agnostic that uh-huh. are is people are, is that when people are like, I don't know. Like I'm not. I'm yeah. not committing to anything because no, I don't I, know. I consider myself a committed agnostic. I think that's, I like, I think I'm not saying that you have to believe in a higher power, but I think, yeah, I, I mean, I guess just that I'm not, well, I, you know what? I'm not saying you have to believe in anything. I don't care what right. you believe in. I will, however, say that the majority of the atheists I know who are like proudly atheists, I'm like, you all are just, I don't want to talk to you or a crazy Bible thumper. Right. Like both of you are well, annoying. It goes back to when we were talking <laughs> to Kane last week. It goes back to just my basic philosophy of just don't be a dick. Yeah, just don't be a dick. Don't be a dick. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I consider myself a committed agnostic because it's like, what the fuck do I know? Mm-hmm. You know, and I've, I've had atheists be like, oh, you're just not, you're just trying to hedge your bets or you're not like committing to anything or trying not to offend Christians. What do you care? I'm like, look at me with my death metal t-shirts. Do you think I'm worried about offending anybody? No, I like, I absolutely like, it's important to me to say, I don't know. Right. And also, I don't feel like I need to know, you know? Also- shut up also, <laughs> and shut like the fuck up <laughs> yeah go read a book or listen to a podcast or something else like get a listen here's the deal it, here here's what the problem is honestly if uh-huh. your personality is completely derived from one thing that you believe in and i don't care if that's that you don't believe in a higher power that you do right. believe in a higher power and it's a specific one or that you fucking really love manchester united i don't care you're right. boring and nobody wants to talk to you at parties. There, yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm specifically thinking of one person. And if that person is listening to this podcast and you're wondering, is Amelia talking about me? Yes, I'm talking about you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I feel, you know, if we're talking about, you know, I understand like the argument that hardcore atheists use sometimes as like, well, you need to take this strong stand because of, you know, the the abuses that the churches have committed on people and, you know, infiltration of our government, you know, it's supposed to be separation of church and state. Sure. And I'm like, I'm with you on all of that. What I'm not with you on is actually telling people they're stupid because they believe something. Mm-hmm. Because as I think I've talked about on this podcast, it's like science is never proved. Like science is always the best theory that fits the evidence at the time. And scientists, a good scientist never gets locked into any belief because they're always like, okay, well, this is what I think. This is what the data shows is what the evidence shows. Mm -hmm. But let's keep investigating until we find something that contradicts the data. And actually Mm -hmm. that astronomy class I talked about on the- Yeah, astronomy. I was like, no, astrology. It is 100% astronomy, yes. Yeah, when I I was talking about the golden record, one thing I remember my professor saying, he used this example, he says, if I have a rubber ball and I hold it over the floor and I let go, you can be reasonably certain that it's going to go down because of gravity. And if I do that 10,000 times, you can be reasonably certain that for 10,000 times, it's going to go down because of gravity. Mm -hmm. What if on the 10,000 and first time I let go of the ball and it goes up? Mm -hmm. That means we got to revise our hypothesis about gravity. Now, is Mm -hmm. it likely that's going to happen? No, but gravity is just the best explanation for the evidence at hand that we Mm -hmm. have now. 
Mm-hmm. And even gravity is called into question because of things like the theory of relativity and things like that. So it's just yeah. like, you know, just never say like, you know, anything, nobody knows anything. Yeah. We think, <laughs> we suspect, we have evidence to point to, but we don't right. know anything. And like, even if you get into like discussions of like intelligent design and stuff, I have no idea with like intelligent design is a vague concept because it's like, yeah, maybe there's something out there that's directing things. Is it the God of the Bible? I don't know. Is it, you know, we don't know. We oh, just well, and I, know. Right. And I think that's the thing is that I'm like, there's just as much proof that there is a higher power as there isn't. Exactly. In, so- in, in my, you know, limited viewpoint, but I like, it's not like you can climb a ladder into the sky and be like, I've reached the end and I definitively know like, that there's nothing up there. Oh, hey, God. How's it going? <laughs> just just checking on you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like I have one way or the other. Yeah. You know, like I said, I'm a committed agnostic and I have several very close friends who are religious. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't get in their face about like what they believe because like, A, it's none of my fucking business. And B, mm-hmm. like, I don't like what evidence do I have about anything? I don't know mm-hmm. anything. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't know. Like, do I think they're right? Probably not. But do I know that they're wrong? No, I don't. Right. You know? Right. Anyway. And, and it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hit, yeah. Hit, that's a, a whole... <laughs> hit a whole fucking sore spot for me. But. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We could continue talking about this and just bullshitting about our viewpoints on this for yeah, years. Right. But, right. uh, <laughs> We've got more stories to tell. So my next story is going to start with a cold open. Okay. Ooh, fuck yes. So this is a quote from the website, All That's Interesting. Okay. And you might figure, you, Amelia, might figure out what I'm talking about before. So don't give it away for people. (laughs) Okay. But here's the quote. It was a clear, chilly night in April. The largest vessel ever to float at 800 feet long, displacing 45,000 tons and declared unsinkable by all who had seen her was gliding through the water with roughly 2,500 peacefully sleeping passengers. Then suddenly it struck an iceberg on its starboard side while moving at 25 knots. The ship was 400 nautical miles from Newfoundland. The ship sank quickly and due to an insufficient amount of lifeboats, it took a majority of its passengers with it. So what story does it seem like I'm telling here? It seems like you're talking about the Titanic. Right? But in fact, I am not. Ooh. I am talking about Wreck of the Titan or Futility. This is a novel that was written by a guy named Morgan Robinson 14 years before the Titanic disaster. Fuck yeah. you! <laughs> oh, okay. So this is the book. That predicted the Titanic. Oh, God. Okay. So my sources for this are Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. The Wreck of the Titan told of the Titanic sinking 14 years before it happened. This is by Katie Serena. This is that All That's Interesting article that I just quoted. This is from September 2017. Also, ultimatetitanic.com slash conspiracy theories. Yes. And then how did society react to Morgan Robinson's futility or wreck of the Titan, both before and after the sinking of the Titanic? This is just mm. a little kind of listicle type thing from Quora.com. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about this Morgan Robertson guy. Mm-hmm. Um, he was born September 30th, 1861. His father, Andrew Robertson, was a ship captain on the Great Lakes. So Morgan Robertson, he was American. Mm-hmm. Um, and Robertson himself, he first went to sea as a cabin boy in 1866. So this was when he was about five years old. Okay. Um, and then over the course of his life, he eventually worked his way up to being a first mate. 
Hmm. But he got tired of life on the sea. It was, it was just backbreaking work. I think he was having some health problems. It sounded like his eyesight might have been failing. Hmm. So he turned to jewelry making for a while, but then became a writer. And he focused primarily on sea stories. So his writing never made him rich. He was never super well-known. But he was successful enough to kind of support himself with it. And then he actually became part of, like, New York's bohemian artist scene of, like, the turn of the century. Okay. Now, interestingly, in 1905, he wrote a book called The Submarine Destroyer. This described a submarine with a periscope. Mm -hmm. Robertson then claimed that he invented the periscope. He invented the whole idea of the periscope in this 1905 book. Um, He even went to try and get a patent for it. Okay. (laughs) Alas, no. The periscope was actually invented by two other dudes three years earlier. (laughs) Um, So so he had a patent application and they were like, "Mm, bye. This already exists. Yeah. Bye. Not so much. He lived until 1915. He ended up dying in a hotel room in New Jersey. He Aww. was he was fairly embittered by the end of his life because he really just never was a very successful mm. author. And it does appear that he died of an overdose. They think it was mm. he overdosed on a sedative called peraldehyde. Okay, so let me just read. This is from Wikipedia. This is the plot description to his book, Wreck of the Titan or Futility, from 1998, 14 years before the Titanic. Okay. The first half of Futility introduces the hero, John Rowland, a disgraced former U.S. Navy officer. Now an alcoholic denigrated to the lowest ranks of society, he has been dismissed from the Navy and works as a deckhand on the, quote, Titan. Mm -hmm. One April night, the ship hits an iceberg and sinks, somewhat before the midpoint of the novel. Then the second half of the story follows Roland. He saves the young daughter of a former lover by jumping onto the iceberg with her. Uh, so as the ship's sinking, he like saves this little girl. They find a lifeboat washed up on the iceberg and are eventually rescued by a passing ship. But the girl is recovered by her mother and Roland is arrested for kidnapping. What? And then a sympathetic <laughs> magistrate discharges him and rebukes the mother for being unsympathetic to her daughter's savior. And then after that, Roland disappears from the world. So that's what? that's the plot to this novel. Okay. Now here's where shit is weird. Okay. <laughs> okay. So like I said, this was written long before the sinking of the Titanic. Mm-hmm. Not only that, it was written before the Titanic was even conceived of. Mm-hmm. But the similarities with the real life disaster are just super fucking weird. Yeah. So here's just, let's just go through the list of things like parallels. Okay. So both ships were said to have been British owned. Mm-hmm. They were also described as having what was called a triple screw propeller, quote unquote. Okay. Did not look up what the fuck that is, but sure. it's apparently a type stuff. of propeller. Okay. Um, <laughs> the ships sank in virtually the exact same spot in the North Atlantic, which is pretty much exactly 400 nautical miles from Newfoundland, both by hitting icebergs on their starboard side. The Titan, when it hits the iceberg, is moving at 25 knots. The Titanic hit it at 22.5 knots. Both were described as going faster than was considered safe for this area. They were also pretty much identical in size. So the Titan is written to be 800 feet long. The mm-hmm. Titanic was 882 feet long. The Titan had 2,500 passengers when it sank. The Titanic actually had 2,200 passengers. But both ships were supposed to have had the capacity to carry 3,000 passengers. Both ships lacked adequate lifeboats, so the Titan was said to carry 24 lifeboats, or the minimum legally allowable. 
the Titanic mm-hmm. actually had just 20 lifeboats. So those are the main similarities, but there are some differences in the stories. Okay. So for one thing, the ships were headed in opposite directions. So whereas the Titanic is going from Britain to New York, or I think mm-hmm. from Dublin to New York, mm-hmm. the Titan was said to be going from New York to Britain when it hit the iceberg. Mm. Um, the Titan was also described as having additional sails on top of like the engine to improve the speed. Okay. Before hitting the iceberg, the Titan collides with another ship and sinks it. This, of course, did not happen with mm-hmm. the Titanic, but there was a near disaster with the Titanic where it almost collided with the SS New York before leaving the Dublin Harbor. Oh, wow. As it was setting out on its voyage. In the book, the Titan capsizes, whereas the Titanic actually split in two and then... Yeah, we've all seen the movie. We know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we're not going to get into it. Right. We've all seen the movie. So the Titan was said to have capsized and there were supposed to be only 13 survivors. Uh-huh. The Titanic actually had 705 survivors, essentially all the people that ma- made it into the lifeboats. Mm-hmm. Now, for some reason in the wreck of the Titan, when John Rowland has the little girl and jumps on the iceberg, there's a fucking polar bear. And okay, he has to like on. battle a polar bear. <laughs> and on, as buddy. far as I know, that did not happen with this. <laughs> the Titanic. <laughs> The Titanic, when it hit the iceberg, it was clear weather. Mm. Whereas in the book, it's like heavy fog and rough seas. Mm. The Titanic struck the iceberg with like a glancing blow. I mean, again, we've all seen the movie. It kind of scrapes mm-hmm. along the side of the iceberg. In the book, it just hits it head on and then actually goes up onto the iceberg and then capsizes. What the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. It's a huge ship. Yeah. I mean, again. Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Suspending disbelief. Exactly. The Titanic, of course, as everyone knows, it sunk on her maiden voyage. In the novel, the Titan had been sailing for a while and it was like multiple voyages in. Mm. So those are the differences. But still, the similarities were pretty uncanny, particularly since the Titanic wasn't even like built when he wrote this novel. Yeah. So the wreck of the Titan or futility, (laughs) Uh Mm -hmm. it wasn't particularly successful when it was first released. Critics kind of noticed it, and it was praised for its accuracy in terms of, like, the attention to detail. In terms of the polar bear on the iceberg (laughs) off of Nova Scotia? (laughs) Exactly. I think think they're mostly talking about, like, the design of the ship and, like, Mm -hmm. the maritime kind of details. Okay. So critics liked it, but the public kind of didn't notice it. It kind of came and went. Yeah. But then 14 years later, the Titanic hits an iceberg and sinks. <sighs> and people, a few people remembered this book and started talking about it, specifically spiritualists of the Ooh. time period. So these were the people who were into Aleister Crowley, who were having seances, mm-hmm. etc. Arthur Conan Doyle was a famous spiritualist. Mm-hmm. They remember this book and they were like, they pushed hard to get the book put back into print. It was long out of print at this point because they were like, Morgan Robertson is a psychic. He saw this coming. He predicted it because, you know, messages from the great beyond etc et et oh et god so the book goes back into print still wasn't a real big hit i mean i think it did better and in fact it went back into print twice there were mm-hmm. two more printings of the book it's still not a huge hit but i think it did well enough that like robertson was kind of able to live somewhat comfortably for the last three years of his life mm-hmm. but like i said he was very embittered he thought that you know the fact that he quote predicted the titanic mm-hmm. um, would make him like a sensation and it just didn't happen And so, like I said, he sadly dies of this overdose three years later. People to this day 
try to claim that Morgan Robinson was psychic. Other people have tried to claim that Morgan Robinson was obviously a time traveler and went back in time. Obviously with a capital O. Obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Went back in time to warn the world about the Titanic. So why he changed all the actual details and added a polar bear, I don't know how that fits the theory, but that's the theory. Also, okay, sorry. I've got to pause here. Yeah. There are a couple of world events after, like, that changed the trajectory of life as we know it. The sinking of the Titanic, while terribly tragic and completely avoidable, was not one of them. Yeah, so why warn people about that? Right. Like, this isn't the, you know, the discovery of, like, the nuclear bomb. This isn't, like, you know what I mean? It. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. No, I'm... I'm I I get it. (laughs) I smell what you're stepping in there. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, but this is like, obviously Morgan Robertson was psychic or he was a time traveler, et cetera, et cetera. This is what Morgan Robertson had to say about it. He okay. always denied that it was clairvoyancy. He said the reason why the book was so accurate is because of his extensive knowledge based on decades at sea of maritime trends, ship design, and where things were going. For instance, he knew that you know they had not conceived of the Titanic yet, but ships were getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm. He could kind of see the writing on the wall. He basically knew the innovations in ship design that were allowing ships to get bigger and bigger and bigger, mm-hmm. like this triple screw propeller. He also knew that there really was only one path, like straight path from the UK to New York City, which would mm-hmm. be the main route you know, at this time that these big ocean liners would be taking. Mm-hmm. Um, and he knew that the biggest risk to these ships, these quote unquote unsinkable ships, would be icebergs. Mm-hmm. This area right around Newfoundland was one of the most dangerous places for icebergs. So in other words, he used his knowledge and he used common sense. Right. So again, we're just thinking believability scale. Like I'm putting your like Pollock twins. That's that's a solid three or four to me. Mm-hmm. But the idea that the wreck of the Titan is supernatural is a one. Like we have a very clear explanation of why this book quote predicted the Titanic. Right. Still fascinating though. I actually I have the book on my Kindle and I keep uh-huh. read it. Have not read it yet. There's a whole bunch of conspiracy theories about the Titanic, right? Oh, there's tons. I didn't really get into it, but like, you know, like I said, one of the websites was Mm -hmm. this uh, ultimate Titanic slash conspiracy theories. Right. There's tons. There's tons. There's my favorite Titanic conspiracy theory is the whole thing about it being like essentially an insurance scam. Yeah. That's that's my favorite one. That's one of the more common ones. And it's probably, I mean, I don't buy it of the conspiracy theories. It's probably one of the more plausible ones. Mm -hmm. There's also the conspiracy theory that, and I think it's part of the insurance scam conspiracy theory that actually wasn't the Titanic that sunk. It was the Mm -hmm. oceanic. Mm-hmm. And they called it the Titanic and then sank it because apparently there was some problem with the oceanic. Yeah. Like the, it was on its last legs and they were like, Ooh, right. but we can't we're, like it. It was something like if we, if, if they were to have like taken it off sea, uh, right. they would have had to like pay all this money or whatever. So they were like, just send it fucking out and we'll like one last. And like, they knew that it was on blah, blah, blah. Like go and look it up. If you're interested in conspiracy yeah. theories, just fucking Google Titanic conspiracy theories and check it out. Cause it is an interesting it's interesting. Here's why I don't buy it is because there are a lot of ways to commit insurance scams. Would this company really sacrifice? I think it was like 1,700 people died. That's a um, lot of people. It was like a ton of people 
yeah died and then just the bad publicity even if you get the insurance money this could have destroyed what was the white star Star line Line. yeah Mm -hmm. so yeah i don't tend to believe the titanic conspiracy theories but i do find this book fascinating how yeah I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's just a lot of similarities and yeah, maybe they're all coincidences, mm-hmm. but it's some pretty staggering coincidences or, or like coincidences or just like extrapolations right? You know, from like what he knew about where the, you know, the maritime industry was heading. Yeah. To me, the weirdest thing is the fact ding, that- ding, 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 ding. <laughs> sorry had to do it again good good um the weirdest thing to me is the fact that they both happened in april yeah that's like the most specific like like that's exactly what happened in the titanic yeah i think this i think april and like one being named the titan and the other one being named the titanic that's yeah that is like whoo that's some well and clearly the again evidence that this book was not super successful because you would think the white star line people if they knew this book existed were like maybe we should pick a different name right (laughs) oh yeah we don't want people to be thinking of this book that said our ship is gonna sink right yeah (laughs) yeah Um, absolutely Ooh, nice but that is the story of the wreck of the titan where do you stand just curious where do you stand on the movie on the movie titanic yeah okay I can't think about the movie Titanic without thinking about the fact that I saw that movie at least four times in the theater. Yeah. Which also leads me to the memory of my dear, amazing older brother took me to see the movie in the theater at least twice. (laughs) I don't know how many times he saw that movie in the theater. He saw it a lot. And the last time we went to go see it in the theater when the ship was sinking and there's the shot of like all of the dishes falling, mm-hmm. my brother was like, that's my fucking plate. I want my plate because I've spent enough <laughs> my fucking money on this movie, but I want my fucking plate. Um, <laughs> like in the middle of the fucking tragic sinking of the ship. Yeah. I enjoy the movie and I see it as two separate movies. Right. Like everything before the ship sinks and then everything after or everything pre-iceberg and everything post-iceberg collision or it's two separate movies. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, it was also just like, you know, I was what, 18, 19 when the yeah. movie came out? So it was 97. So yeah. Yeah. And it was just, it's a, just a wonderful time capsule like leonardo dicaprio at his at his most you know cherubic yo my god yes and i was never i mean i was never a big scotty obviously knows probably knows what i'm about to say here i was never a huge leonardo dicaprio fan Mm -hmm. um he's not quite my style but he was so of the time and especially like who he like the way that he looked and everything in that particular movie he was just so late 90s early aughts heartthrob kate winslet i loved all of her costumes, you know, she, you know, she was struggling with her American dialect and all that good stuff. <laughs> the the costumes were gorgeous. The whole thing was like incredible. And I've always been fascinated by the Titanic. So mm-hmm. I was super excited. So yeah, that's kind of like in a nutshell, what my thoughts are about yeah. it. No, I think, you know, when I saw it, you know, I would have been probably 19 or 22. Mm-hmm. And I think at the time I really didn't want to like it because I was like evil death metal horror guy. And here's this like girly movie about romance and kissing and stuff. <laughs> um, so I think I really poo-pooed it for a long time. Uh-huh. And then I saw it. I decided probably, I don't even this is within the last 10 years. 
Mm-hmm. I was like, you know what? Like, I'm gotten a little bit over myself, I think. Um, I'm going to go back and rewatch Titanic and see what mm-hmm. I think. I really liked it. <laughs> I'm like, it was probably like the third time I had seen it. Yeah. I think it's got its flaws. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, but I but hell if I don't start sobbing at the very end when she yeah. fucking climbs that staircase and Jack is at the top and everybody's around her. Like, yeah. I, I'm a sucker for it. You know what I'm saying? A ball. Every, I, I mean, I could start the movie right there and I'm like, <laughs> they had a love i do always think of that that last scene with jack in the ballroom uh-huh uh, i'm like oh this is the happy version of the shining because if you remember the shining at the <laughs> right. end where zooms in on the picture of him but yeah no i i appreciate the movie a lot more now for one thing having actually gone to film school mm. time, i feel like i can watch titanic and kind of see what he was doing and like one thing is it's like yeah it's a cheesy love story but you know he was doing like a douglas cirk melody drama if anyone knows douglas sirk he was kind of known for the quote women's weepies of the 50s Mm. and he was like really like leaning into that so there's something just very nicely old-fashioned and then just the craft of that movie is incredible and the special effects really hold up yeah they do and it's like it's 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 a good looking movie you know all that stuff to me it really is like two separate movies yeah i yeah. mean because it's like fucking eight hours long or whatever the fuck too right. <laughs> but yeah it's if, so long if any of y'all are like titanic naysayers like i used to be i would say go back and give it another shot it's worth, yeah it's worth another look okay all right cool okay so the last thing is like i said i had told you this last week after we had stopped recording with kane also bt dubs kane how lovely to have you on the podcast yeah uh last week what a what a wonderful conversation i'm so glad we all got to do that Absolutely. um but after we got offline, I was Scotty and I, as we do, had continued to talk for a little while. And this, this thing came up and I was like, oh, are we going to do an odds and ends? Because this is one of my odds and ends stories. And I, I, But I really want to talk to you about it. And, <laughs> and Scotty was basically like, just wait. Um, so so this is not quite so much of a story as it is a little bit of a discussion topic. Um, and it stems from a a friend of mine had posted on Facebook, this article from deadline. And the article is titled TCM puts classic films, breakfast at Tiffany's Mm. Tarzan psycho gone with the wind and more under the microscope for offensive content. Interesting. Okay. So Turner classic movies, which is, I will now refer to as TCM. That's what TCM stands for uh, is starting a series called reframed classic films in the rearview mirror and okay so we've talked about this a fair amount on this podcast but if you don't know like if any listeners out there are unaware of this old movies are like hella problematic yeah like so problematic movies we're talking about movies like from 10 years ago. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, yes, those are still old, but like, so when you start talking about like early Hollywood right. days, when you're talking about gone with the wind, which has been accused of glorifying slavery and perpetuating racial stereotypes, right. um, breakfast at Tiffany's has one of the most, I mean, in my opinion, one of the most shockingly blatantly racist portrayals of yellow face 
ever. Like I, yes. I, I cannot believe that movie got made with that character. Mm. Psycho sets up a dangerous t- tradition of showing cross-dressing character as a dangerous villain, et cetera, right. et cetera, et cetera. And so these movies were made during a time that had like a different set of values and morals than we have now. Just again, as a, a little bit more of some historical context. Back in the day when they were doing shows like I Love Lucy and Lucille Ball got pregnant, the network got like, I, I don't know, they like they got like the vapors about showing a pregnant woman on TV yeah. because it would insinuate that Lucy had had sex with her husband. Right. So they were like, oh my God, we don't know what to do and blah, blah, blah. And like, they couldn't even say the word pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Like everything had to be like euphemisms for it, which is just I, like, she's well, pregnant. It's, it's like mean- so natural. Universal Studios freaked out about Psycho, not because of like, you know, the murders and whatnot. Yes. It's because they showed a toilet. The Guys. Toilet never been seen. <laughs> and she's not even sitting on the toilet. She flushes. A it's not like you. Dumpster. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's not like you like look in there and there's like toilet paper in there or something. She like flushes. Yeah. Some notes down the toilet. Right. Like. But they were just like, you can't show a toilet. And Alfred Hitchcock was just like, fuck you. Eat a dick. Um, Eat a dick. Yeah. He was like, I, <laughs> I have to wonder if he was like, okay, I'll give you the toilet flushing, but then that's it. Like, because yeah. the rest of the movie is deeply disturbing. You're right. So, yeah. So it's like no real surprise that these movies were, that movies and TV, you know, in early Hollywood were like super puritanical about sex and other body functions. Right. But they let blatant racism, homophobia, sexism, et cetera, like- slide. So I think that this is an interesting way for TCM to deal yeah. with this. So they announced their reframe series that will be airing on the channel every Thursday through March. So we're a little late. You've missed a couple, but you can, if you have access to TCM, you can still go watch some of this stuff. Quick little history about TM. Wait, turn TMC. TMC. TMC is a Warner media owned cable channel dedicated to quote, lovingly presenting and preserving Hollywood cinematic heritage. In regards to reframed the series, the network says, quote, all of the films in the series are legendary classics, but when we watch them today, we're seeing them in a different cultural context. We often see problems now that we might not have seen when they were made, whether it's about race, gender, or LGBT issues. TMC's Five hosts will take turns doing roundtable introductions of each of the films where they will discuss these 20th century films with the 21st century perspective. Mm -hmm. The goal is never to censor, but simply provide a rich historical context to each classic. Dave Carger, who is one of the co-hosts, says, quote, we're not going to pretend this didn't exist, but we're also not just going to put it all on a pedestal and say it was great. I really think that this is an interesting way to like step to your own shit, you know? what I yeah. mean? Yeah, no, I agree. You know, to go back to, we mentioned the whole Dr. Seuss controversy last week. Mm-hmm. I think what people are upset about with the Dr. Seuss thing, and again, I don't think it falls under the category of censorship, mm-hmm. but what people are upset about is they're actually pulling these books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think people are even more upset that eBay is like, and you can't even sell the used ones on eBay anymore. Interesting. And that, like, I'm all for, like, if the Dr. Seuss estate wants to pull these six books, I don't think it's, like, damaging Dr. Seuss's legacy. It's not canceling Dr. Seuss. They own the rights. They have the right to do it, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. The eBay thing I feel a little more weird about mm. um, because that starts to feel like we're trying to throw something down the memory hole, which I don't tend to agree with. What but I like, is, it, is it also right for people on eBay to profit off of that's, this nastiness? I mean, I, 
Right. Well, and it's also these books are like being marked up by like crazy right now. Yeah, so like that's the thing is that they're not going to sell for like, of... yeah, yeah, they're not going right. to sell for like $13. I, I can under like with when it comes to the estate pulling the books, I'm like, mm-hmm. you know, whatever they can do what they want. When mm-hmm. it comes to eBay, I can kind of understand both sides of the argument. Yeah. You know, and if it gets to the point of like pulling things out of libraries and mm-hmm. you know taking any reference off of the internet, you know, that obviously no one's talking about doing that. I mean, I don't know about libraries. That's probably sort of a local thing. You know? Yeah. But when it comes to like these classic movies, like you're talking about, you know, I've talked about H.P. Lovecraft ad nauseum and how mm-hmm. problematic he is. I'm still an H.P. Lovecraft fan, but as I've said, like if part of being an H.P. Lovecraft fan is you got to step to his shit. You've got to yeah. acknowledge it. You've got to like wrestle with it. You've got, it's worthy of discussion. You know, you've got all these great writers. Like I think I've mentioned him on the podcast before, Victor Laval with his Ballad of Black Tom, who's like, you're kind of reappropriating Lovecraft from a black perspective. It's like, mm-hmm. like, this is what you always hear the anti-censorship people talk about. Like, well, it's the marketplace of ideas. You don't want to shut down the marketplace of ideas. Mm-hmm. To me, documentary like this, and I don't know anything about it. I hadn't heard of this before you talked about it. This mm-hmm. is the marketplace of ideas. The movies are out there and then now we're discussing them. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's an interesting thing to see. And I, I believe the panel is, is at least, I think the panel is somewhat diverse. I hope it is. I, uh, hope, I so. hope it's not just Let's get a Turner. bunch of old white guys to talk about right. how these but movies Turner. handled race. Yeah. That's me. Yeah. What the hell is it? It's Turner classic. I think movie, it's so it is TCM. TCM. Yeah. yeah. Um, I didn't want to, I didn't want to correct you to be an asshole. But like, no, it's I was fine. Like, oh, you were right the first time. It, it, I've <laughs> written it every possible way in my okay. notes. Cause obviously <laughs> I was like speeding through this, but it is TCM. Yeah. I think it's a really, I think it's a very interesting way to say basically what they said. Like, we're going to show these movies because they are like, this is part of Hollywood's history. And they were huge, you know, a little bit like how you talked about Birth of a Nation and like what Griffith did with everything that he did Mm -hmm. and his contributions to Hollywood, but also saying like, and yeah. There's, there's some like, there's some gnarly stuff when you pick up this rock and, and that needs to be examined as well. I mean, this seems like the opposite of canceling something. Right. Because to cancel something suggests you are, like I said, you're throwing it down the memory hole, which is a right. Orwellian term from 1984. Uh-huh. Um, that's not what they're doing. They're saying like, they're actually saying, let's remember these things, but let's remember them in a different context. Right. Let's discuss them. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, also, too, when I was doing the thing about the Knickerbocker that has the plaque about D.W. Griffith, like, and that there's like no mention of this. And I think that's just as much censorship as taking the plaque down and not saying anything about it at all. That's interesting. Uh, then then you get to the question of who's being censored. And right. By just like lauding D.W. Griffith without any context, you're sort of censoring the criticism. Right. Which is valid criticism, you yeah. know, because he read a, he made a racist ass film right he made it like clan propaganda right i mean absolutely yeah and, and i do think there's you know it, this gets into the whole debate about you know confederate statues and stuff mm-hmm. you know people say you're trying to cancel history when you're removing these confederate statues or renaming army bases or high schools or whatever mm-hmm. it's like but creating the statue without any sort of context mm-hmm. you're immediately putting this person onto a pedestal and literally saying, on a pedestal like literally on a pedestal saying this is someone we should celebrate and the argument around removing these confederate statues isn't about like let's forget this let's you know let's sanitize history but it's like this 
should be in history books and museums where we can actually talk about the thorniness around these people. Right. Yeah. That's that's how I feel about like Lovecraft. You know, Lovecraft is, I think it's possible for these filmmakers or writers or artists or whatever to have created great art. Like the art can be great in many ways. And it can also be like, we can look at it with a critical eye. Like they're not contradictory. Yeah, it was interesting in the Facebook post that I had mentioned where I even saw this article. A lot of people were piping in and being like, oh, good. Like, I'm really glad this is going on and and that's fantastic and and all that stuff. And somebody was like, what's the problem with Psycho? You know? Oh, God. Let me count the way. (laughs) And they came in to be like, you know, somebody else came in to be like, well, hey, this is what's going on, which is basically what I mentioned is that like it sets up a desk. It sets up. And you and I talked about this last week, and this is why I was like, oh, I want to talk about this, but we can't right now because we yeah. need to save it for the story. Spoiler alert, I guess, if you haven't seen <laughs> the movie Psycho and 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 want to remain unsullied, like skip forward sure. a, a few minutes. Yeah. In it, you've got Norman Bates, and right. he owns this motel, and he's a, a murderer. Mm-hmm. And uh, you come to find out at the end that he is, you know this better than I do, because I have seen the movie, but it scared me quite a bit right. when I was younger. So I haven't seen it the whole way through. There is a moment where he is, he is dressed, revealed. yes, like his mother who is dead. Mm-hmm. To my recollection, there is not anything about him being somebody who is gay, who is trans, who mm-hmm. is even really having anything to do with being like gender expressive or anything like right. that. It is something else, right? That's going mm-hmm. on with, with the whole connection. Cause he also has his mom's body and he like mm-hmm. sleeps in the bed where she's sleeping. Like there was this whole, right. there's a whole thing there, but people feel like it sets a really dangerous precedent. And it did. It went on to set a dangerous precedent in movies of men dressing as women and being, you know, right. well, these like, like monsters. Yeah. Well, again, this is why these things are worth discussing, you mm-hmm. know? And I, I love Psycho. It's, mm-hmm. it's one of my, probably my top 20 favorite films. Not my favorite mm-hmm. Hitchcock film, but I, mm-hmm. I do love the movie. And, you know, to be fair to the film, what it's saying about Norman Bates is not that he is trans or like you said, gender expressive or gender fluid or anything like mm-hmm. that. Is that. He has multiple personality disorder. He literally thinks he's, there's Norman Bates. Then there's an entirely other persona, which is his invented concept of his mother. Mm -hmm. you know what but what's problematic well there's a couple things problem one is it's completely wrong about how uh, multiple personality disorder works right but beyond that like you said i'm not sure you could i would say i don't know enough of the history to say this is the first example of a character quote-unquote cross-dressing being presented as villainous but it's the most famous mm-hmm. and it did lead to a movie mm-hmm. from i want to say 1980 we talked about this last week called dress mm-hmm. to kill starring michael Caine. this was a movie that was directed by brian de palma who mm-hmm. uh just spoiler alert i'm not a brian de palma fan Okay. Um, I mean, I do like his adaptation of Carrie, but I think that's about it when it comes mm-hmm. to his film. But he, you were talking about tickling the balls. Like he tickled <laughs> balls of Hitchcock, like his entire career. He, <laughs> I forgot I said that earlier. <laughs> I'm tempted to Oops. make that our episode title, but I don't no, <laughs> but he just, he kept trying to reappropriate these Hitchcock scenes, uh-huh. but much more showy without the artistry and often missing the fucking point of the scene. Mm-hmm. So the reveal of Norman Bates as mother is revealing this separate personality. He pretty much rips off that twist in the movie dressed to kill with Michael Caine, but the reveal of Michael Caine as the cross-dressing 
killer who you think the killer is a woman throughout the course of the film mm-hmm. it is real revealed that he is trans or i should say she is trans mm-hmm. that's like okay that's oh. fucking ugly you know yeah. yeah and it was a direct result of brian de palma's hero worship of alfred hitchcock Mm-hmm. We talked about, you know, in the film Silence of the Lambs, you know, because that's in there as well. And um, if, if you want to know a little bit more about the way that trans people have been depicted in film and TV, a great documentary to watch is Disclosure. I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure it's readily available on Netflix. And it is, it's a very in-depth look at the history of trans characters in Hollywood. And it is, it's pretty bad. Um, I mean, up until very recently, it was either, it was something that was played for or either laughs or disgust or mm-hmm. fear. Right. And that's, you know, that's kind of the thing that is like, and we might be able to draw a line directly back to Psycho in the history of that. Right. Yeah, exactly. And again, I don't think by discussing this, any of us are saying we should throw Psycho away. Mm-mm. I am a fan of the film. I'm not a mm-hmm. fan of Dress to Kill, but like I said, I'm not a fan of Brian De Palma. Mm-hmm. And I should say, when it comes to Dress to Kill, it's not just the depiction of the trans character that I don't like. It's I don't like Brian De Palma's whole, like I said, tickling the balls of Hitchcock career. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like there's only one Hitchcock who by the way, was also super deeply misogynistic and problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like, we don't need another Hitchcock, you know? Yeah. And you're, and you're not as good as him. So even just on a craft level. And a brand well, and who knows, man, maybe if you'd spent more time figuring out what your own artistic vision was than tickling Hitchcock's balls, like maybe you could have been right. something other than the guy who was trying to tickle Hitchcock's balls all the time. You know exactly. what I mean? Like if you, if you'd spent that time cultivating your own voice and viewpoint, maybe you would be, you wouldn't be this like sticky right shtick like he has a hitchcock shtick that he does yeah you know but when it comes to psycho or we discuss silence of the lambs which is much more deeply problematic Mm -hmm. as we were talking about again this was off podcast last week you know i've read the book silence of the lambs and Mm -hmm. i've seen the movie and i actually read the book before i saw the movie because i think i was fucking 12 or something when i read the book it was Mm -hmm. right before the movie came out my memory it's been a long time since i've read it my memory is the book is much more thoughtful about the depiction of the Buffalo Bill character and whether or not Buffalo Bill is trans Mm -hmm. and the ways in which Buffalo Bill is not trans and how it's something separate going on. The book Mm kind of goes into it Mm -hmm. in a way that the movie just doesn't. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm a fan of Silence of the Lambs. I don't know if that's okay these days or not, but I am. You know, it was a big influence on me, but right. I also the way I am with Lovecraft, I acknowledge that the depiction of that character is deeply offensive and troubling. Right. And I think that, you know, again, it kind of, <laughs> and this plays off of, uh, I can't remember when I said this. I feel like it was a couple of episodes ago, but maybe it was just last week that I was having a conversation with a friend, a very brief conversation with a friend on Instagram that was like, you know, at this point, it's just figuring out who is less problematic right. because I think when you're talking about stuff like this and this goes, you know, this goes to film and TV, this goes to books and authors, this goes to the fucking founding fathers, this goes to, you know, how Planned Parenthood was started, all of that mm-hmm. stuff. 
I think it's important to have the historical context, not in order to be like, oh, well, it was a different time and that's okay. But to say like, these things were a product of the world that they were created in Mm -hmm. and to examine them from sort of like a, like a scientific viewpoint rather than either erasing everything bad or only holding on to the good. I remember exactly. when when Hamilton the musical became very big when it got when it finally got onto Broadway and it really started just like blowing everybody's minds. They did a 60 minutes I think with the cast and they were talking to David Diggs who played Jefferson and they were asking him, you know, like you're playing Thomas Jefferson who is extraordinarily problematic human being. And David Diggs was hardcore paraphrasing here but was like, yeah, and he did a lot of like he had an, a lot of incredible ideas and he was an he had an incredible mind and he did all of these horrible things like you can't throw out the baby with the bathwater and i think that that's an important thing to say like we can't i think it's dangerous to erase history in one way or the other you know exactly. what i mean to say like we're getting rid of all of the good so we can only focus on the bad or we're getting rid of all of the bad so we can only focus on the good because humans are just way more complicated than that well and that see that's that's exactly where i land on this is that i actually find the complexities fascinating yeah so when you're talking about a movie like psycho to me it's like fun it's it's an act of appreciation of the film to talk about the ways in which both hitchcock as a human being was problematic the way the movie is problematic Mm -hmm. and if we want to move forward as a culture and maybe outgrow some of these things, you mm-hmm. have to examine our past. Right. You know, this is part of the process of becoming better. Right. Know? And yeah. it's not about becoming more woke in some political sense, you know. Right. I'm like the fucking Fox News throwing a term at us, you know, to get mad at us kind of sense, you know? Right. It's about like, I think it's fascinating where we come from, but I think we should look at it in a clear-eyed way. Right. You know? Like I find Birth of a Nation fast. I don't do not like the movie, but I find the cultural context of that movie, the history around it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, you know, I think we can think, you know, maybe we want to be a little careful about saying things like fun, because in terms of psycho, it happens to be a movie that you and I are not part of the community that, right. that might be adversely but, affected you know, by something like that. But having said that, you know, their West Side Story, West Side Story is a deeply, deeply problematic portrayal of Puerto Ricans, of Latinx people, immigrants. Mm -hmm. I mean, and that like one, the story and two, the movie, they got a lot of non-Latinx people to play those parts. They painted them, they painted them all the same shade of brown. Literally, like if you watch the movie, they are all this weird, ashy, dusty brown color. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, and yeah, like there's a lot of, there's a lot of problematic stuff in there. And I love, I love the music and I love the I love the movie, you know. Right, but but you're also self aware about it. And back to the the psycho thing, yeah, maybe the word fun isn't right. I know what you mean. But like, I think there's if you're a curious person, there's mm-hmm. joy to be found in like you know Rubik's cubing, really anything. Yeah. And when it comes to psycho, it's like yes, I'm you and I are not we're not part of the trans or gender fluid community, mm-hmm. but I am certainly part of the mental illness community. Mm-hmm. You know, so on one level, both Psycho and Silence of the Lambs are, you know, questionable depictions of mental illness. Right. But again, I don't feel the need to throw Psycho away. 
right. any more than I need to say, like, it's off limits. Like, right. You can't criticize it. As I've said many, many times, obviously, I'm a Lovecraft fan, but I'm also a big Stephen King fan. Mm-hmm. Stephen King is like historically super tone deaf when it comes to race. Right. And like, I'm not going to be someone who like, if someone like points that out to me, I'm not going to get super defensive about it. Also, by the way, if you as an individual want to self cancel something, yeah, I'm not, yeah. not going to sit here and tell you why you're wrong. I just said, I am you know a fan of Psycho and Silence of the Lambs, even though I recognize ways in which they are, they have issues. Mm-hmm. But if you are someone who is triggered by those films for any number of reasons, I'm not going to sit here and browbeat you about why you're wrong. Right. You know, you are allowed to have your experience with that film or those films or any work of art that is honest to you. Which I think goes back to a little bit of what I was talking about. I don't even know when I was talking about this. This was like first few episodes, I think, talking yeah. about this idea of getting everybody together to like cancel something. I want to I want to be a little careful about what I and I don't want to be careful. I want to choose my words correctly because mm-hmm. there is some stuff that it's like, mm, yeah, no, like those people don't deserve to have our money thrown at them anymore. Right. Um, and it's definitely the argument about J.K. Rowling these days, right? right. You know, like uh, yeah, maybe maybe you know maybe we don't need to be throwing her a bunch of money anymore because she's come out as pretty much a a major dumpster fire. And, you know, but kind of along this thing of what you were saying about self-canceling, that like, I think we forget that we are allowed to be like, I don't watch that and I don't watch it because of this, or I don't read that and I don't read it because of this. And I don't feel like supporting that person with my dollars, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that there are, I think that there are things that require a large community commitment to eradicating, but it's also, I think, I think we forget that sometimes that like, it's okay for us to just be like, I don't, I don't like, it. like, I don't, yeah, I don't dig that. I don't drive on it. And I also think it's another thing. This was something that spurned from what you were saying a little bit earlier. You know, a lot of this stuff is kind of like critiquing 101. Like in order to give something an honest to God critique, you have to go beyond I'd like it or I don't like it. Right. I think it's, good for us to flex the brain muscles of this is why this is problematic for me. Mm-hmm. I have an issue with the way my community is portrayed or the message that this is giving. <laughs> I remember, uh, I think I had gone with a friend and a friend of that friend to go see, I believe we were going, I believe we'd gone to go see oceans eight. Mm-hmm. We were sitting in the theater and the lights go down and the previews start. And the first preview I think that comes up is, and this is, you know, within the last few years, Right. first preview comes up and it's for that fucking movie peppermint, which oh, yeah. I don't know if anyone remembers because I think everybody was sort of like, I think everybody collectively was like, Ooh. um, what it's Jennifer Garner mm-hmm. and she has a little girl. And I don't know if the little girl's name is peppermint or what the, I don't know what it is, Yeah, I know but basically it's real like, Oh, a bunch of like Mexican baddies crossed the border and are being, you know, doing what Mexicans are going to do. And they're running drugs and being violent and, mm-hmm. you know, having cartels and shooting children and stuff. And, you know, we were, Deep, deep, deep in the middle of Trump's anti-immigrant, anti-Latinx, anti-Mexican rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Kids are, you know, being detained uh, and put in cages and all this stuff. And I was like, I, who the fuck greenlit this movie right now? Mm-hmm. Like, I cannot think of a more 
irresponsible movie to put out right now. Yeah. I mean, the movie didn't go anywhere and maybe that's (laughs) why. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Well, but I think again, you know, the studio, you know, they have the right to I'm gonna be a little careful how I say this. Mm-hmm. Uh they have the right to green light whatever they want. They do they have the right to release or not release whatever they want. Mm-hmm. They do not have the right to be protected from criticism. Yeah. And so this this goes back to my discussion. This I think this was the same episode we were talking about. This this was our uh, Sonny Bean episode, Sonny Bean and Headless Horseman episode. I think where I was talking about the movie or the book and movie American Psycho mm. and how they were picketed by uh, American Psycho, and particularly I believe by the National Organization of Women. And like I said, I don't necessarily agree with their take on it. And as I said before, like I find the book kind of unsuccessful for other reasons. Mm-hmm. But again, this is the marketplace of ideas. If we want a free exchange of ideas, anything is susceptible to criticism and discussion. And, you know, in a capitalistic society, the only way to make your voice heard when it comes to something like this is with your dollars. Mm -hmm. So like, if it comes down to we should pass legislation to ban books like American Psycho, I will be marching in the streets to say no. Right. Uh, Because that is censorship. But a boycott? That's, hey, man, that's, that's the free market for you. That's capitalism. Like, yeah, you know, I may or may not join in your boycott, <laughs> depending right. on how I feel about a particular thing. Right. But I will support your right to boycott. I will support your right to criticize. And criticize doesn't necessarily have to be like, this is terrible. Let's wave our fucking fist in the air, whatever. Criticism can also be like this documentary that you're talking about. Or there's another one on Shudder. It's really great called uh, Horror Noir mm-hmm. that's that's discussing black imagery in horror films over the last century. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of uh, black academics and filmmakers and what, discussing their personal and sort of intellectual reaction to some of these images. You mm-hmm. know? It's not canceling. It's not canceling any of these movies, but they are hard on some of these movies for a good reason. Yeah. I I think I I think when you were talking about something that is already out, you know what I mean? When you're talking about something like you're talking about Gone with the Wind, if you're talking about West Side Story, if you're talking about Psycho, Breakfast at Tiffany's, all of these things, these movies that are are I mean they are. They're like Oh my God. I remember watching breakfast at Tiffany's for the first time and getting to Mickey Rooney in that and just being like, yeah, it's, it's what is this? Yeah. It is so I've never even seen the whole movie. I've just seen the stuff of him because I think it was in a film school class talking about problematic. Yeah. I mean, I also am not, I, (laughs) okay. Okay, film people or whatever the F, like, please don't come for me. I have never been super impressed with Audrey Hepburn. I think that if Audrey Hepburn had a bigger nose, she wouldn't have been Audrey Hepburn. I think Audrey Hepburn was Audrey Hepburn because she was lovely, because mm. she was absolutely lovely. I I don't think that her work is particularly compelling. Right. I mean, I do um, like her in the movie Wait Until Dark, but even then it's like, I just like the movie and Alan Arkin is who I really remember in that movie. Audrey mm-hmm. Hepburn is like, she's fine. I don't know. She's just, she bites her fist a lot and I don't know, it's right. okay, you know, yeah. um, fine. But yeah, so I was already not like super uh, won over by the movie. And then we get to Mickey Rooney. I, I'm trying to think of a more blatantly racist i mean i'm sure there are I mean, out there you know birth of a nation 
<laughs> but the Birth like, of a Nation was how many? I mean, it was it was decades before. Yeah, and Birth of a Nation is nineteen fifteen. Yeah, and Breakfast at Tiffany's was like nineteen sixties, right? Right. I mean, it's and I it's, mean it is it is it's insane. It, it is insane, and I don't even know if he's I don't I don't I don't know if he's Chinese or Japanese or just like Asian. Yeah. It, oh my gosh, it is it it was you know pretty horrifying. Right. And those things already exist. I wonder what our responsibility is. And I, and here's the thing, I want to be very clear that I'm not talking about a blanket statement of making everything un, like unoffensive, mm-hmm. but in the case of a movie like Peppermint, did nobody sit there and go, Hey, there's some pretty nasty rhetoric that's going on around Mexican people in the United States right now because of this administration. Right. Is this the right time to be making this movie? Yeah. And no, that, it, like, that's, that's the thing is that, and, and maybe they had that conversation and maybe they were like, yes, it is. Yeah. I, I mean, as somebody who is, is a creative person and is in a position to choose material to produce, mm-hmm. there have 100% been things that have been floated, you know, plays that have been floated across my desk that I've been like, nope. I'm not doing this right now. Yeah. I'm not doing this unless we have a definite definitive point of view to come at this thing with well and like where i mean when you talk about the responsibility like i always go back to if it comes to you know we need legislation you know that's where i push back because you know not only do i just generally not support censorship government censorship i also don't like the precedent a lot of these, and I'm not going to go into the, like all of them, but a lot of these liberal wish list kind of social legislation that people want to pass. Mm-hmm. I always, I'm like, mm, yeah, but when the other side gets back into power, you've set the precedent, they can turn it around and use it on you, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like, there's always unintended consequences with that. When it comes to a societal responsibility, at the very least, at the very bottom minimum. Mm-hmm. I think we have a responsibility to not ignore shit. And, you know, that's what these documentaries do. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another great one called The Celluloid Closet. It's about depictions of gay characters in films. Mm-hmm. It's also what boycotts do. It's what mm-hmm. Twitter activism, woke social justice warrior activism does, mm-hmm. whether you agree with it or not. And I don't always, I will say. Mm-hmm you know, kind of case by case basis. I don't always agree with the what is sort of derisively called the wokeosphere. Mm-hmm. But I think, and obviously Twitter and social media kind of like, it's always lowest common denominator of any of these debates. So it's usually yeah. just not that useful. But I fully think the more discussion, even if it is angry discussion about these things, the better, because that is a free country. Free country isn't freedom for the things you like. Right. You know? Right. Like, and that goes, if you are uh, on the left, you don't get to say, I'm not allowed to watch Psycho or anyone's not allowed to watch Psycho or Birth of a Nation. We need to like, yeah, we need to pull it from the shelves and burn all the copies and and do all that. But if you are on the right, you don't get to say that I can't criticize Psycho or I can't criticize Silence of the Lambs. Right. Or Birth of a Nation. And that was that. That was it. You know, going back to uh, what I was saying like eight hours ago about the, um, and I got off on my own tangent yeah. there, so that's totally my fault. Well, that's but fine. The, I yelled about atheists for ten minutes. So. 
<laughs> but the comment, you know, when some, the comment on the Facebook post, when somebody was like, what's wrong with psycho and another person came in to be like, well, this is what's wrong with it. The original commenter was very like, was very much. And I mean, if his avatar was true, looked to be a sort of middle-aged white male uh-huh. presenting person was very like, come on. And yeah. I was like, yeah, but the thing is, is like, you have to look at this from the point of view of a community that is already vulnerable, that is already Mm -hmm. having extraordinary violence done to it and, you know, is trying to have legislation passed against like their own civil rights and things like that. And so it's like, yeah, we might need to, we might need to be a little specific about how we present psycho and how we talk about it. And I think the same thing is true. You know, you were saying the thing about mental health. I think, I think the same thing is true about mental health. I think Mm -hmm. at this point in time, it is dangerous to write movies about people who are monsters who also happen to have mental illness. Because as you and I both know, millions of people wander the world suffering from severe mental illness who don't go around, you know, mm-hmm. chopping people up into bits. And I think it's a, right. I, and I think, and again, not talking about legislation being passed, but when you were talking about if you are a content creator, I think it would behoove everybody to stop and think for a sec. Like, am I putting a vulnerable community at risk by doing this? Right. And well, if I am, do I have a reason for doing it? And can I do something else? Yeah. And I think, I mean, cause I run into this with some of my own work. Yeah. Know, I got a fair amount of not, not a ton, but like enough to be real pushback on my movie, dead Billy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I had my reasons for making that movie and you could argue that it depicts mental illness in a way, like you were just saying, Mm -hmm. but it was a very personal, you know, kind of journey through my own issues of Mm -hmm. depression. And it wasn't something I didn't think about. And I think that's all I ask people is like, think about it. Mm -hmm. If you are a comedian and you have a rape joke, think about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, I'm not going to tell you you can't tell that rape joke. But, but you also gonna need. Say, I'm going to say you need to think about it and shut the fuck up when people yell at you about it. You yeah, know? I think I think that's I mean, like, oof. Comedy is. It's tricky. It's so, 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 so tricky. And I, I don't know. I think it's also I mean, I think that there's I think. I, I mean, there's a lot that goes into it and I don't know the subject well enough. If if you tell a joke, whatever the joke is, and you have people that come up and they're like, hey man, like- Didn't like that joke. Yeah, like you're really punching down with that joke. And, and again, you were talking about like a vulnerable community. It is a very lazy answer. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to say this against like, I'm going to say this, that this applies to all creative mm-hmm. industries. If your response is to just be like, well, oh, well, I, you know, my, it's my job to be edgy and it's my job to right. like push buttons and blah, blah, blah. Find yeah. another button to push maybe. Well, and also, but I mean, like, like there's plenty of, of stuff out there that you can do that doesn't mock I, people's like traumatic experiences. Ex- exactly. Like I, you know, I fully, you know, as a horror writer, like, I fully think art is supposed to be transgressive. Not all art, but, like, there's a place for transgressive art. There's a place for taking risks in art of offending people. 
of you know poking at people's sensibilities you know particularly when it comes to comedy satire things like mm-hmm. that there's a value in saying the quote dangerous thing sometimes mm-hmm. but unfortunately too many people hide behind that and like you know if you know if you're trying to be transgressive with your art is it because you have something to say with it or is it because you're just trying to piss people off because of attention or because you think it's funny or whatever. Yeah. I agree with you a lot on the thing of like, I, like, I don't think art should make you comfortable. I think, (laughs) I don't, I, I think art needs to be risky. Yeah, but we don't have a universal definition of what risky is. Right, and I think with a lot of these, right, and I think with a lot of these comedians, and I mean, I and again, I think with a lot of creatives, it comes down to this thing of you don't even actually believe that it's your job to be edgy. You just don't have anything else to back up why you decided to do this joke, Mm -hmm. and so you're using this sort of like, oh, don't fuck, don't censor me, right thing to make it seem like you're, you know, this very like pro free speech, you know, you have this very pro free speech stance when that's not what it is. So basically I'm like, you don't get to use it when that's the lazy answer. There is a comedian named Daniel Sloss who I don't remember what special it is. I believe you can find it on Netflix. The last third of his act is about rape. Mm. Um, and it sounds like, I mean, even me saying it, it like it's hard to get the words out to say it correctly because I don't know that I'm going to be able to describe it correctly. It is a very, very interesting and fascinating example of how one might use that topic in comedy. Yeah. Um, That's the thing is it's, it's, I don't think there's any topic that should be off limits in any art. Mm -hmm. Um, but if you're wading into these things, you need to think about what you're saying, why, and look, you know, I got, I got pushback on dead Billy. I don't agree with all of it. Some of it, I probably like looking back, there is stuff I probably do think like, okay, well, I didn't think that there as much as I could have or whatever. But I think if I'm going to put something like that out in the world, my responsibility at the very least is to listen to people, Mm -hmm. not get defensive. That doesn't mean I have to agree with you. Mm-hmm. but I do think like if I didn't want to hear it, I should have made a different movie. <laughs> you know, that's the nature of the beast. I just don't have a lot of sympathy for comedians or artists or anyone who, you know, they go out and they do the edgy thing. They say this transgressive thing mm-hmm. and then turn around and like whine when people criticize them. Well, my thing is always, I'm like, look right now, today, you making a rape joke, you, you know, making a very like racist. And when I'm talking about you, I'm using the sort of like, <laughs> like you, and obviously Scotty not, Milder. not Scotty, but like, if you are a white straight cis dude and uh-huh. you go out and you make something that deals very like deal in a very blase way about rape, racism, sexism, right. homophobia, a- a- any of these things, you're actually not being edgy. You're doing something that people have been doing for centuries. You're making somebody the butt of the joke. Yeah, you're being predictable at this point. So you're actually not being transgressive. You're not doing anything that's like risky. You are reanimating the corpses of old bits and jokes and plots and and, and blah, blah, blah. You're being a boat comic. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you're being a hack. 
Look, that, your comedy, that. your comedy is the day old chicken sandwich at Hardee's. Right. Um, so, yeah. so that's the thing is that like, like, don't get mad when people point out your lazy work. Like if you want to be it, which is again, and like Daniel Sloss is a, I mean, dude is Scottish. He is a white dude. He, from what I can tell, he is a like cis, I'm going to take a gander straight yeah. dude. and he turns the taboo of rape in comedy so in my opinion smartly and impactfully on its head that it i mean i kind of like i i watched the special the whole way through and at the end i was kind of like i i was i was kind of blown away because i was I like mean, i wow i don't know how you did this yeah i'm going to have to find that that sounds yeah. interesting. Yeah. Well, I think the word you used is the important word is blase. Like mm-hmm. I, again, I don't think any topic is off limits, but there are certain things, race, sexual violence, really violence period, mm-hmm. you know, gender issues, et cetera. We just go through the list. These are not blase topics. Mm-hmm. If your take is blase at best, you are a hack. Yeah. And that's, you know, going back to my death metal discussions, why I lost interest in a lot of death metal is, again, I like dark stuff. I like transgressive stuff. I mean, one of my mm-hmm. favorite writers is Clive Barker, who, you know, particularly in his early stuff, was really pushing a lot of limits. But mm-hmm. when you get to a band like Cannibal Corpse and all their shit is just like fucked with a knife and meat hook sodomy and hammer smash face, like you said when we were uh, discussing it, I was like, who cares? It's boring. Yeah. You know, at best, you're boring. Yeah. Um, and at worst, like if you're DW Griffith, you're doing actual damage. Yeah. You know, or not even, you don't even have to, you know, Alfred Hitchcock, who I think is a great filmmaker, did actual damage with some of his films. Mm-hmm. Not just the films themselves, but actually like to the people he worked with. Uh yeah. Yeah. Uh, Stanley Kubrick is another one, you know. Again, I don't, I'm not looking to cancel Hitchcock or Stanley Kubrick, but I want an honest assessment of them as artists, of their art, mm-hmm. them as human beings. Mm-hmm. And I think to discuss any of this stuff is not to sanitize. It's like you said last week, you know, sunlight's the best disinfectant. Right. So, yeah. you know, just some food for thought. Well, I'm going to have to check out this TCM documentary. And like I said, uh, a big... It's a series. So they're doing like every Thursday, they'll show a movie or two, and then they'll have like this little like oh. round table discussion. Okay, that sounds that sounds even better. Yeah. And again, if for all you horror fans out there, if you have not seen it, it's on Shutter. Go watch Horror Noir. It's mm-hmm. really interesting. It also introduced me to a lot of movies I didn't know about. Oh, very cool. So, yep. And the other one is Disclosure, which I believe is, uh, was produced by Laverne Cox Mm -hmm. and has uh, a lot of trans artists, uh, were involved in it and are interviewed in it and is a nice, nice little history, Mm -hmm. uh, about that. And I believe you can find it on Netflix. We'll put it in the show notes. And, uh, The Celluloid Closet, which is a few years old. Cause I think, I could be wrong, but I feel like that came out when I was in grad school. So that would be like 15-ish years ago. Maybe it wasn't quite that long ago, but it was at least probably a decade ago. Right. Basically, just go out and decolonize your film education. Well, and just just be curious. Like, be curious beyond, like, I like this movie or I don't like this movie. Yeah. Like, that's that's the yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Think about things. <laughs> think. Think about things. Don't, like... 
there's no one's canceling Alfred Hitchcock and there's not a door to hell outside of Lordsburg. Right. Use your common sense. <laughs> right. Reincarnation may exist, but what's his face who wrote the crash of the Titan book was probably not a time traveler. Yes. <laughs> exactly. That's our wrap up. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Be sure to rate, review, subscribe, do all the things. Mm-hmm. Stay weird. Stay curious. We'll see you next week. Oh, no, we won't. Oh, no. We won't see you next week. Yeah. We'll see you in a few weeks. We'll see you all in right. a few weeks. That was by rote. We'll see you in a few weeks. Bye. Bye. So listen, friends, we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing.